Hello friends, welcome to another episode of the TFC Audio Project. On this episode of Health Conversations, I speak with Karen Holowati. She's a local psychologist from Ottawa. Um, we had a great conversation. We start by talking about what initially directed her to pursue psychology and the education involved in becoming uh, a psychologist. We talk about being ready for change, her approach to therapy based primarily on listening and helping someone gain clarity to the changes that they need to make. Uh, we spend a bit of time talking about the importance of language and that forming a therapeutic alliance with their patients is really the first step towards a successful outcome. I really enjoyed the conversation with Karen, and I hope you find the information interesting and useful in your own life. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by TFC App. Why create an app? Because the internet is a messy and confusing place when it comes to health education, and we wanted to create a platform that extracts content from the smartest people we can find and organizes for you in an intuitive way based on your preferences. The goal is to provide you with all the information you need to restore your health and live a more natural lifestyle. The app's available on the iOS App Store, and until the Android version is optimized, the web version of the app is your best option for now, So, if you don't use an Apple device. The app is still very new, and our small team is working every day to improve the platform, and we appreciate your patience uh, as we continue to develop it. This episode of the podcast is also sponsored by the Roasters Pack. Our team at TFC Head Office are big fans of coffee before 10 a.m., and this Canadian company provides a cool subscription service that delivers you three great coffees to your door each month and gives you the story behind the craft roasters that they come from. Check out theroasterspack.com, use the code FOOT at checkout, and you'll get 7 bucks off your first month of any subscription, which starts at 27 a month, all in, including shipping and taxes, so it ends up being less than a buck a cup. Lastly, this episode is sponsored by Gorilla Mats. We feel a part of healthy living is spending more of your sitting time on the ground instead of in chairs or on the couch. And at the TFC office, we use Gorilla Mats to make ground, ground sitting as convenient as possible by making the floor an inviting place to read, to move, to work on mobility, and even to eat meals. Gorilla Mats make oversized yoga mats that protect your floor and make it more comfortable to spend time on the ground. They're also insanely durable. Uh, we throw kettlebells around all the time on these mats, and they've stood the test of time. We've been using them for a while. So if you go to GorillaMats.com, use the code TFCTRIBE, you'll get 10% off any of their mats. Go check them out. That's it for sponsors, so let's dig into this episode. I hope you enjoy. It's the TFC Audio Project. It's a collective effort. Help people understand their bodies, starting at the feet or the gateway for people to see that there's an issue. You know, a foot conversation is always a whole body conversation. Hello friends, Nick here, back for another episode of the TFC Audio Project. Uh, our guest today on this very special episode of Health Conversations is Karen Holowati. Karen, welcome and thank you for taking the time this morning. Um, out of your, I know you're a busy person, so you know I think having a conversation about mental health can help a lot of people. So thank you for making it out. You're welcome. <laughs> so Karen is a local practicing psychologist uh, who I crossed paths with a while back through uh, through my physical therapy practice, and she's just an all-around awesome human. So Karen, why don't you start by introducing yourself and give people kind of a brief background um, of what you do and who you are, and then uh, we can dig into the exciting stuff. Okay. Well, I'm a PhD in psychology. I've been practicing since, ooh, let's see, it's been 15 years now. Cool. And um, <clears throat> uh, we don't get to declare a specialty in uh, according to uh, the College of Psychologists, but... According to the rules. According to the rules, yes. But um, the area that I focus on and have a lot of expertise in is trauma. Okay. And so I work with, currently I'm working with... Uh, 
mainly uh, military and police okay. who have PTSD, depression, mm-hmm. you know, anxiety issues. I do also see some private uh, clients with various issues. Um, another one of my areas of expertise is working with adult survivors of childhood abuse. Gotcha. So uh, trauma is uh, is the thing that gets me going just mainly because I like to free people mm-hmm. from just various states of suffering. Wow. Even that, I'm so excited for today's talk because even the way that you frame that free people from that suffering is a very, um, it's a shift in perspective, I think, from what mm-hmm. I thought mental health was, from what I thought, mm-hmm. you know, even our brief phone call that we had, I don't know, three weeks ago, mm-hmm. um, exploded my mind with like, oh my goodness, this there is such a different empowering approach to this thing that we call mental health and mental health treatment and therapy. Um, that was a complete frame shift in what my perspective as someone who's never done therapy uh, mm-hmm. is. And I think we'll get into that today is just the misconceptions and like the the what people think of as therapy and what the reality is of therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, just to give it some context, I think we I think you'd agree we live in a pretty amazing time today. Right. Mm-hmm. Overall, people are living longer than ever. The struggle for survival on a daily basis has really kind of been removed for a lot of people. Um, the Internet is here. That's an insane development. It is. So on the surface, things look pretty good. But when you dig a little bit deeper, it's also like a really disturbing time. Um, where there's huge amounts of people that are suffering both physically and mentally. Uh, There's a lot of debilitation. You know, people are hurting each other physically and socially. So, you know, in terms of mental health, um, there's a 2016 national survey on drug use and health. And I think these are are U.S.-based stats, but I would Mm -hmm. imagine they're fairly consistent in Western countries. That showed that 18% of adults live with a mental illness. So one in five people live with a mental illness with women having higher prevalence um, than men and 18 to 25 year olds having a higher prevalence than older adults. You know, mood depression, mood disorders like depression um, and bipolar are the third most common cause of hospitalizations. And, you know, we have a major problem right now. So I'm really excited for this conversation today to unpack some of the reasons, uh, in your opinion, why we have such a big problem and talk about what needs to change in order for us to start solving these problems on a broad scale, not just on an individual basis. Because I think every case of mental issues is obviously unique, but I think they all share similar underlying characteristics. And so talking about those, I'm pretty excited. Um, So you give a bit of history and about what you do, uh, where your practice focus is, what you, the kind of cases that you end up seeing. But what made you wanna, like from the very beginning, what made you wanna become a psychologist in the first place? What guided you down that learning path? And then how has your perspective on the profession changed? Because you've been practicing for a long time. Mm -hmm. Uh, How, what got you into it? And how has your perspective changed over the years of the profession itself? Right. Um, <clears throat> well, in terms of what got me interested in it, um, I think since I was a child, I've always, I'm like, I'm an introvert. So I'm always watching, observing. And obviously humans are fascinating, right? So <laughs> they are and, very and fascinating. I, and I want to, and you know, when, when you're from a young age, you just, you know, and I think it's true of a lot of people, you, you want to know, like, what, why does the person, you know, um, why is that person being aggressive or abusive to this other person? What is going on there? Or, you know, um, in my family, we also, um, I think we have a brain that's sort of wired to be um, more reactive or more sensitive. So we're more prone to anxiety disorders. So I saw that around me and wanted to, I basically wanted to understand it, not only to help myself, but to help them and, and just kind of cope through it. So it's funny how a lot of people 
come at i always like to know how people got to their path because for most people it's personal experience or personal curiosity related to their life or the ones they care about and this is held consistent with so many people in totally different realms of health uh but i find that very very curious so Mm -hmm. keep going sorry Mm -hmm. to interrupt yeah and then not only in my family just just watching humans on a daily basis and um i'm fascinated by the mind and you know what are all the potentials and there's so many potentials we haven't even used yet or most of us don't use Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I, I just always, I don't know, right into, from high school onward, I knew that I wanted to pursue psychology. And in order to become a psychologist, you have to go all the way to a PhD. So I was just bound and determined and awesome. did all the work to, to get there. And um, That's very cool, having a, like, high school, I think people having direction and a laser yeah. focus to what they actually want to do in high school is extremely rare. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know for me, I, I graduated from undergrad and I didn't even know what I wanted to do. Right? Mm-hmm. I had an idea, but I was like, I guess this is the best option. But it was never like, this is interesting to me. This is what I want to do. Right. Boom, pursue that path. And I think if people had the, if people were empowered in high school to know that, you know, whatever they're into, mm-hmm. they can pursue that and make something of it. I think people would be a lot happier with the work that they do because they would have actually pursued something because it's what they liked or loved or were interested in and not pursued something because that's what you, you know, that seems like the most viable option to make enough money to live a life according to the script of life. Yeah. Um, Cool. So then after, so what's the path to become a psychologist? So you said you have to go to PhD, but what does that look like? So the path to become a psychologist is you, um, typically you start with a bachelor's degree. So you have to do your BA Mm -hmm. and then followed by an MA and then your PhD. So uh, bachelor degree, mine was four years, and then MA and PhD. MA is typically two years. PhD can range anywhere between four to, oh God, let's see here. So in total I did. What was your undergrad in? Undergrad was in psychology. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And then of course you get your MA and your PhD in clinical psychology. And what's MA stand for? Masters. Yeah. Okay. Masters of Arts. Masters of Arts. Master of Arts. Yeah. And then PhD uh, is time variable, I guess, because it's like on you to complete it instead of like a a specific X amount of years. It's like you got to do this. Correct. Yeah. It usually people range between three and three and six years for the PhD because not at the same time that you're you're doing your um your dissertation your research project you're also doing an internship like i did two internships actually i did an on-site internship and then i did an off-site internship hmm. and then our program at the university of windsor was very it was heavily focused on clinical work so we had a lot of clinical work at the same i mean you could take on um as once you get to the phd uh section of the program you don't have to take on as much clinical work but at the same time you're encouraged to because the more that you know when you graduate you're just better prepared right. so i happen to be a person that took on more clinical work and of course my phd took a bit longer to do but i'm happy that i actually put the time in to cool. do the to do the extra work so. yeah i don't think anyone looks back and says i wish i would have done right. that five times quicker and gotten way less from it right right so, so yeah like do it at your own pace based on what you want to do after you're done the degree yeah um and I think like clinical components are, are so important, mm-hmm. uh, you know, certainly in physio, like that was, that was what I loved most. That was almost like the refreshing light at the end of the tunnel where you're mm-hmm. like, I actually get to interact with humans, right. see how they behave, help them in whatever way, whatever capacity I've got at that point in time, which when you're in school isn't very much, but it's mm-hmm. more than that person knows. Mm-hmm. 
And so, yeah. Yeah, and a lot of it, like, a, I was I was just telling someone the other day, they were like, well, you know, what does what your training actually look like? And I said, well, it was like not only doing the, you know, on-site and off-site internships and then, you know, constructing a, your research project, but also it's like hundreds. And also I probably could tally into the thousands of hours of um, watching either live therapy through wow. like a window or but mainly like videotaped therapy and then mm. i also supervise students towards the end of my work as well uh, so you you see a lot of patterns yeah, yeah a that's lot of patterns behavioral observation that's that's yeah. crazy to think about it in that yeah. way yeah because i mean and so i was just a, you know you say like it's um you know it's not always that in high school you know what you want to do i've just always been an observer and a studier so mm. it was just natural for me to to go Amazing. to take it to that place so and i yeah I find observing behavior extremely curious too, both like as an observer for my own behavior and figuring out like, why do I do this shit? Why do I act like this? And then trying to create a hypothesis and seeing like, does that add up? But you look at other people that do things that you would just look at them and shun them off as like, that person's crazy or that person's weird. And you're like, what made that person do that? Exactly. That's the question. It's such a different perspective shift in in behavior going from um, just looking at the outward expression of that behavior to going to okay that's the outward expression how does it get creative because humans aren't designed to be mean or right or harmful or nasty mm-hmm. um and it's almost like you go from feeling from disliking people that act like that to almost like feeling a sense of empathy of like that person probably had a rough go to lead them to this path so that they got here um exactly the whole walk in the in, in a mile in a person's shoes, right? right? Like, so if you you look at each person that way, you know, your perspective, you also, you're not going to take personally what they do. You know, mm-hmm. that's something to do with right. what's going on with them and, and how much they've examined or not examined right. their own selves. Yeah. What's the difference between psychologist and psychiatrist? Is that the US? Can he, is no, that like? No. So it's, it's, it would be the same throughout North America. So um, a psychologist is a PhD, which is a doctor of philosophy. Okay. A psychiatrist. Oh, wow. Yeah, I didn't know that. Psychiatrist isn't so. Yeah, doctor philosophy is basically what um, one would get in any other field other than medicine if you're getting the doctorate. Um, whereas psychiatrists are MDs, which is um, the medical uh, doctorate. So, gotcha. so they start off as physicians, and then re- um, psychiatry is like a, a residency that they specialize uh-huh. in. Maybe they should also do philosophy instead. <laughs> we won't get into that. Right. Um, yeah. And, and so basically as physicians, um, they have the ability to prescribe medication. Psychologists mm-hmm. do not have the ability to prescribe medication. There are... Interesting. There is a... Oh, I'd say... I wouldn't say some. I'd say less than some psychologists who would like to have prescription privileges. But there right. are a large amount of us who like the fact that we don't have prescription privileges. So, you know, and and obviously it's very easy to do. I mean, obviously you're sitting across from people and knowing that some particular medication could help someone if I ever have that feeling or it should be tried as one course of action. Mm -hmm. Um, As a tool. Yeah, as a tool. It's very easy for me to, and this is the route, to just call their uh, general practitioner and then they make the referral to the Either they prescribe it themselves or they make a uh, referral to a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist gotcha. prescribes. So it's just like a longer path, but it's yeah. not, it's, yeah. Yeah. Cool. And then what, would you say you're, um, you're a conventional or an unconventional 
psychologist. I mean, psychologist. I don't even know what definition I would give to that. Right. But the common psychologist that the average person will go see versus, mm-hmm. you know, and what distinguishes those two? Right. Uh, that is an interesting question. Um, I guess I would say I tend more towards unconventional, but it's a mixture of conventional and unconventional. Because obviously, when you commit to a training program, you it's based on science. Mm-hmm. So Hopefully. Hopefully, yeah. In in our case, a lot of it is. Good. So, um, so yeah. So you know that you you need to follow that because that's what science. Uh, that's what our study is telling us. Right. At the same time, though, you are a unique person with a unique personality, um, and also I think you have. In order to be a good psychologist, you need to have a lot of cognitive flexibility. Um, and I think most of us do. Um, every now and then, you may run into a psychologist or a therapist who is um more rigid in their in their thinking in terms of you know whatever protocols they've been trained in mm-hmm. um but it's very important to have the flexibility to because i you know we need to tailor what we're doing to the person sitting in front of us right and so you have to be very open minded to okay these couple of you know tools that i typically would offer they're not working so now i have to um I need to either do extra research or I need to suggest other things or I need to bring in other practitioners. So my job is like a detective. I have to figure out what's going to work for this person. And you, you know, a lot of it, some of it's trial and error, right? You try things and okay, that didn't have, get the results or, mm-hmm. you know, accomplish the goals. And okay, now back to the drawing board. <laughs> I love, I love that perspective of trial and error. And also yeah. like, I think a lot of the problems that we have in the world of health and medicine in particular actually stems from a lot of inflexibility, mm-hmm. right? The idea that, you know, you have this problem that fits into this box. This is how we treat that box. Right. And this is all I know to do. And right. that's all I can give you. But then that should be followed up with, well, I don't know what else to that, how to help you, but I'll refer you to A, B and C who yep. can. But oftentimes it seems like that doesn't happen. It's sort right. of like people are viewed as sometimes people are viewed as like a treatment failure, which from the program where I was trained, that is considered, oh boy, that's like you never... I'm trying to think of the term to describe never doing that. That's like the most forbidden thing to ever think, right? Because if someone is not... Because how um, much of treatment failure is practitioner failure? Well, this is it, right? Like, Or the system failure. Right. right? That's probably more accurate. It's how I would... Yeah, exactly. So um, I, my philosophy when I'm looking out at someone is if you're not getting better, we're failing you. Yep. Essentially. Yes, that's the right perspective, I think. Yeah, like we as in the system. Yep. Yeah, and, and you know we just have to keep many kicks at the can to make sure that we get you what you need, or you know at least support you until we find something that's going to mm-hmm. do the trick. Yeah, very interesting. And you know we talked about before humans are extremely tricky creatures, and I think mm-hmm. I think a lot of smart people that go into health professions think that they're going to be able to understand everything. Think that they'll mm-hmm. have the solution for every problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're very smart people. They're typically very. Um, not rigid but they're very structured people they're extremely smart and they're usually type a so Mm -hmm. you know i think when you look at human beings i would i remember i used to get frustrated by not knowing what to give this person or why is this person not getting better but when you accept that humans are like infinitely complex systems that you can never fully understand but that you can troubleshoot systematically and make progress if if you're on if you have the trust bond if a person's being honest with you with what they're doing and what their motivations are and what what issues they're having and you come at it from the standpoint of I'm on your team to get you to help you figure out how to get yourself better. I think that's a very different perspective than come see me, I treat you, I fix you. 
And I know that that perspective was one that basically is is kind of reinforced in physio school. Like you are mm-hmm. there to treat people, mm-hmm. but you're not there necessarily to help them troubleshoot their lives to figure out how to resolve those issues. And, right. and it was a very big, um, almost like disruption in my way of thinking of mm-hmm. like going from speaking in front of someone to them to standing beside them being like, we'll figure this out. Yeah, that's, that's a big. huge difference. Yeah. And I think yeah. psychology, you know, I remember when we talked, you talked about how your biggest role is to get people ready for change. So can you talk about that? Because that was very, mm-hmm. that's a, that can be unpacked a lot, but it's really, because the resistance, a lot of people know what they need to do to be healthy. In terms of physical health, it's like, I need to eat better, I need to sleep, I need to move more. Yeah. But they're not, they they don't, they still keep doing the harmful behaviors. So mm-hmm. it's like, what is the obstacle? Do they not feel, are they not aware that they can change? Mm-hmm. Are they scared to change? Because I think the fear of change is a big one that we don't really talk about. Yeah. So talk about like coaching readiness. What does that mean to you? Right. Well, I think like coaching readiness starts with being a very good listener. My one of the biggest parts of our jobs as psychologists or therapists is to give people like listening space so that we hear the whole story of what's going on currently. And then, you know, factors that have happened in the, you know, the past as well, um, so oftentimes in our world, it's so fast paced and it's like people don't have time. So people get an hour of my full attention. And that's a lot. Yeah, it is. And uh, but that's one of the biggest definitions of my job is, you know, when when people have that space, they start to calm and they start to naturally sort like because that's what we're doing we're we're saying okay this this is one stressor that's going on for you this is another stressor oh here's another one and oh that's a past one (laughs) (laughs) and you know and we put it all out on on the table um so that we can see that what we're dealing with um and you you said that too it was like vent put everything on the table and then clarify yeah and then get the path i often call it uh vent and sort like a wash and fold kind of a thing (laughs) you know um because Sometimes you don't know uh, exactly what's going on unless you get a chance to express. Mm -hmm. So the venting and expressing, um, and then I help you kind of organize it a little bit. And and then you kind of sort through, okay. And the sorting typically means, okay, which are the things that I have control over in each one of these stressors or areas, right? And then, okay, what is taking control? or And that usually means making changes, Mm -hmm. right? But in order to, like... What will happen sometimes if you go to see, um, you know, a physician or another practitioner or um, um, is, or say you talk to someone in your family, you know, you're telling someone about what's going on in your life, the problems, different things. People will immediately jump in with solutions. Yes. They don't give the proper amount of listening. They don't listen to the whole thing. They don't listen to your perspective. They jump in with their perspective. So um, they're thinking of what to say next instead of actually listening fully. Exactly. And so what ends up happening is it creates a lot of resistance in the other person because the other person is saying, well, you're not fully understanding what's going on. I don't, you know, that works for you or that doesn't work for me or, you know, and then the, and then you'll sense the other person's frustration because they want to help you, but you're not listening. And so that creates a lot of resistance. Whereas there's very little resistance when, you know, you're fully listening when I'm fully listening to someone, right? Because mm-hmm. all that full space is there. And um, so. Um, it so allows just, people to be. And, and I remember you said it's helping people become consciously aware, consciously aware of their subconscious 
feelings or their or the things that are causing them uh, like internal friction right. that they can't even articulate. Because sometimes it's hard to articulate feelings yeah. with language. And so if you try and articulate the feeling, it might not work. But if you try and articulate the whole story of what is creating that feeling, then that can sometimes be the source of becoming aware of what you didn't even know was happening. Yes, thank you for that. Like we can, you, you discover a lot in that. Um, yeah, what I was saying is like without the proper amount of, of, of listening space, um, uh, that's when people can, um, you can kind of see, okay, what are the, like this is how I, you know, we determine, okay, what does the person want? Okay, well, I want to feel right. happier. Um, you know, I, I don't want to feel as anxious. I want to feel calmer. Okay, so then, so then once we do the, um, you know, the express or vent and sorting everything out, mm -hmm. then we start to get a picture of like, well, what, what is blocking you? from getting those different things. Right, what are the right. obstacles? So it can off, it, it can be internal conflicts and oftentimes it's, you know, you don't, you're not carving out time to take better care of yourself. That's often one of the biggest ones. So it's, it's all, about, and you know, it might actually be making a larger change in your life. You know, like this, you know, there's not a lot of things I can do at my work to change my perspective or change how much stress is being you know, loaded upon me. So it might be changing your job. You know, mm -hmm. it might be, you know, it might might not. It might be going in and having a conver an assertive conversation with your boss saying, I can't do 70 hours a week anymore. Right. I can only do 50 hours a week, you know, and that change alone can make can make all the difference. And, and, you know, if they're not amenable to that, then you do have to seriously think about, you know, for the sake of your mental and physical health, making mm -hmm. that drastic change of finding another job. But again, that can do wonders for, how the body is functioning, right? Because, you know, once that load of, you know, tension, extra tension is taken off, that can, you know, your symptoms can can change a lot. And I think just the act of taking action itself yeah. is a way to exert a sense of like internal intrinsic control over your life, right? Totally. Like I have bad, something, some circumstances right now are causing me problems. I have the ability to change them. And it might be uncomfortable. Like I always tell people sometimes when it comes to like a physical injury, if you are approaching a storm and the storm is going to suck, if you try and sidestep and go around the storm, number one, you don't learn the lessons of how to deal with that storm in future. Mm -hmm. But number two, oftentimes you don't actually get the full benefit of recovery. Whereas leaning into the storm, knowing there's going to be a, a bit of shittiness involved and discomfort. Right. But then you come out and you're like, I learned a lot through that. And I actually feel way more empowered that I can deal with the next storm that comes. And so it almost like is something that helps reduce anxiety of future issues because you're like, I dealt with that one. And that was pretty huge. Right. So I can deal with these other ones. And, exactly. and at least you're doing something, taking action. I think we have like a disempowering medical system that revolves around inaction on the on behalf of the person. Yeah. An action on behalf of others that are helping to treat that person. Mm -hmm. uh, and I just think it's it's a bad story. It's a bad story we've all been told. Right. Well, you know, typically what I see and, you know, from most of my clients, I would say at some point become uh, disenchanted with their medications. Sometimes that means they need a different one. And oftentimes they've tried different ones. Um, I'd say for at least half of my clients, um, at some point they want to get completely off of their medication just because they're tired of the side effects or it's mm -hmm. lost effectiveness or maybe never was fully effective. Um, but then I say to them, well, if we want to do that, then we've got to build a skill set for you, which right. is being able to. So just, you know, jumping off from something you said there um, is basically one of my jobs is to train people to become more 
A, to tolerate discomfort more and to become better at it. So mm-hmm. you, I literally will assign, give assignments to people um, where I'm putting them in, you know, situations where there is discomfort, right? So if you're afraid to leave your, your house, you don't want to go out in public because you have panic attacks, those kinds of things. So I have to make small step assignments to get you to tolerate doing that more and more. Right. Right. You're and, dosing them. Yeah, exactly. And you have to, you know, because you end up really not living your life because part of life is is risk. Part of life is a lot of life is um, you know, discomfort. And, you know, because to grow. Right. Right. To grow, you have to go through discomfort. Something feels, you know, you're afraid, you think you might not be able to do it. Um, you know, so I love the quote, growth begins where your comfort zone ends. And exactly. we're in a society where it's so easy to be comfortable all the time. And I think right. that's part of this underlying discomfort we have that we can't put our finger on is everything seems pretty good at the outset. But these intangible things like being disconnected or, you know, from other people in person, not mm-hmm. digitally, but in person, yeah. um, like these things that are hard to put our fingers on. It's like, you're right. A lot of them revolves around shying away from being uncomfortable mm-hmm. um which is really what's needed to get you beyond the the kind of slump you might be in right and so like part of the reason why someone would come to a psychologist or another um similar therapist would be to you know what when you have that kind of a listening space and someone is basically you know i suspend my frame of reference and i work hard to understand their frame of reference when someone feels fully heard like that magical things can happen in the sense that resistances start to melt Mm -hmm. and then people are open to your ideas first of all a they know they can trust you you're not judging them you're you know they can feel that you suspended your frame of reference and um to understand understand theirs they know you're on your their side right because you basically you've you've earned their trust through a lot of listening a lot of listening and then you know when i start to give suggestions people will start to say Oh, yes, I understand. You know, they're more open to doing it and then they're willing to do it um, because they understand, you know, and I, one of the main messages that I will say, not always every session, but every so often is, you know, if you want a different life, you have to do things differently, which means you have to make changes. So a lot of it is, you know, a lot of making your mental health and your physical health better is making behavioral changes. So, so part of my job is to teach you how to like, um, to have a new um, way of a new cognitive mindset. So you have to actually change uh, the flavor of your thoughts from negative ones to ones that are more helpful. And those are typically ones where you believe in yourself, right? Right. So those kinds of things. Um, You also have to change how you manage your emotions. That's another thing that someone would come to see me for. Um, But a lot of it also is like, you know, if your physician or other health practitioner is saying, okay, you need to move more. Uh, each day you need your your um you need to change what you're eating those are i would say that um movement getting quality movement every day um and getting quality food in you most days is i would say that that would cut you know the symptoms of depression or anxiety it can in half yeah that alone right so like because that's the basics that's like it's common sense. Like we know, like, I mean, we, we, you know, I don't think we need any necessarily any more research studies unless we're refining about how, you know, exercise has been proven to be the best antidepressant, yeah. right? So over and above the medications that we currently have manufactured. So that's, so that's the message that I give to people. And, and you know, 
it's empowering when you make changes in your life because because then later you look back at it and you say, hey, I did that. I had a problem. Right. I conquered it. I, I made changes myself. Someone didn't hand something to me mm -hmm. as a cure. Yes. I basically went in and made tweaks in my life. And hey, in the future, when other things happen, I can make other tweaks. And then, you know, so you're teaching a whole process of basically you know, like snowballs. Yeah, how to take care of yourself. And like I always say, you know, if you're a good therapist, you're teaching your client to not need you. <laughs> yes. Essentially, right? Because I'm teaching them this is this is how you take care of yourself mentally and physically. Because I do give a lot of, I, I make a, I, I essentially badger my clients to exercise and move uh, nearly every day if they can yep. in, in some capacity. Um, because I tell them like the research is just too robust to ignore right. about movement yeah. and its effect on mental health. And ask any neuroscientist, they will tell you that exercise is essential to having a healthy brain that works, right? Yeah, and I think I recently listened to a podcast of a guy that wrote a book on walking and the benefits of walking. He said, statistically, the two best things you can do if you're depressed is focus on your sleep and go for more walks. Yeah, And it's like, and I think food should be on, uh, obviously, like I wrote a book about walking. So that was probably his biased opinion. Right. But but I think for the most part, the problem is, I think a lot of times is doctors will say, eat better food and um, go move more or mm -hmm. exercise more. Mm -hmm. And I think the problem is the disconnect between the advice and then how to execute on that advice. People mm -hmm. are like, oh, I know I got to move more. But how the hell? They, they, most people interpret that as I need to exercise more. Mm -hmm. And if exercising, quote unquote, by going to do like a... Uh, a circuit training class hurts your knees there's an obstacle there that needs to be figured out right if every i, I you know i know i need to move more to be healthier every time i move it hurts and that's where i think physical therapy or, or the movement professionals that help people troubleshoot movement problems yeah. uh, has a huge potential because if movement is a big key for mental and physical wellness but there's an obstacle stopping you from moving, well, we can do a huge amount of benefit by just getting people more comfortable and taking down the fear of movement is actually the biggest thing. Yes. Right? It's not about getting people to do 100 squats. It's like, did you know movement means also just going for a walk right. without your phone? Did you know movement just means like, you know, carry a kettlebell around your house when you're moving up and down Farmer's the stairs? Walk, like yeah. Anything, right? Yeah. Like the, the spectrum of movement is so big and our, our, our understanding of exercise is such a tiny spectrum of movement where, you know, if you got to exercise, well, you got to go to the gym, you got to buy a mm. membership, mm -hmm. you got to do all the shit involved with exercise. Whereas mm -hmm. like you can move in your house, just spend yeah. less time on your couch. Right. Uh, like literally uh, take, go walk five steps on the spot every 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, if, and it's giving people the, and I think that's where this rapport comes in. You have to understand the person to understand what the, the smallest step they're willing to commit to is. Right. Because you can give someone the best 30 minute hip mobility routine in the world. If they're not going to do it, it's zero effectiveness. Mm -hmm. And without and you know without understanding that person, what their life is like, and what their commitment level is like, you can't be effective. Mm -hmm. And I, I I think that part of the effectiveness of psychologists is being able to actually spend time with people. And we talked about this. How doctors now are like, you know, we're valuing efficiency at the expense of effectiveness. So yeah. if you see more people during the day, but your effectiveness in helping people get better isn't changing. I don't know if that's a good goal. Mm -hmm. And like this fee for service thing is all about efficiency at the expense of effectiveness. And we're, we're creating a big problem. Um, yeah. 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 I mean, I, I will say that there, I have been starting to hear stories. I mean, cause my clients tell me about the, and I ask them questions about the other practitioners because I want them to understand 
also like why are they going there what is helpful what is mm -hmm. not helpful you know um so they become more empowered about their whole rehab um but i would say i'm beginning to hear more stories um about uh say physicians who who are taking extra time it's just, what it what it comes down to is that um People just, they don't feel like they can carve out the time to do the, you know, the movement or the other prescriptions that they've been given. So they, they will hear from their physician, hey, you got to change, like you said, hey, you got to change how you eat. You got to, right. you got to move more. But I think, like, I think part of our role as, as healthcare practitioners is, as you said, understanding who is this particular person in front of me? What kind of time do they have currently? And yes, you want to teach them to carve out more time for themselves, right. you know, little by little. Um, but I think it's helping them to to design a a, a plan. Right. Right. Exactly. So, Guide them. Yeah. Exactly. So you know, I have you know some of my more um, uh, depending on the state of readiness of a person. So if someone is you know already somewhat fit and they eat not too bad and um, you know they don't have too many stresses in their life, but they have a particular problem they're coming to see me for. I can assign to that person to do you know fifteen to twenty minutes of meditation most days of the week, and it's the likelihood of them completing that will be high. Whereas um, with I would say with most people, when they were coming to see me, they're in a lot of distress. There's oftentimes you know more than one stressor going on, and so it you know if I assign twenty minutes of meditation a day, it's not going to happen. Right. And I know I've done the experiments. I've tried to do that early on in my career, and 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 learned that um, that wasn't going to work. So now I'll assign you know let's start with two minutes. Let's start with two minutes in the morning and two yep. minutes in the evening. And they're like, well, what do I do in those two minutes? And I said, well, we're you're slowing down your breath and you're following your breath and you're just putting your attention to that. And, um, and interestingly, I have someone, one particular client currently who I think he works like 70, 80 hours a week. And that's one of the issues that he's coming um, to me to see, which is to um, make changes to that kind of schedule. Um, but he's actually been quite successful in doing his two minutes in the morning and two minutes in the evening. And he actually says he notices a difference from that. Like he Amazing. feels a little bit calmer, right? And he feels like he's, and over time that started to build. And he said, you know, I, now when, you know, when the boss is screaming at me, I'm, I'm not affected by it as much. You know? Amazing. But that's only two minutes twice a day. It doesn't take a lot. <laughs> I mean, it's not just that that we're, you know, dealing with and right. I'm having him make some other adjustments. But but I'd say that, you know, like, because I ask, you know, for each thing that I assign, I ask specifically, okay, this particular thing, what did you notice? Like, what do you mm -hmm. notice that's going on in your body? Is is it helpful if it's not? If not, we'll, we'll tweak it. We'll try something yeah. else. And just in his particular case, you know, I, I was even astonished that, you know, four minutes total could make a difference. It doesn't take a lot. Right. And it's exactly because it's really, you know, that old saying, the journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. It's like you got to that's the health professional's role is determining what that one step is. Because a lot of people try and take the thousand mile journey in yep. a week. And then they're like, well, that was way too hard. So I can't do this. It's right. like, well, did you just go too ambitious out of the gate? Like maybe yeah. let's start smaller. Right. Well, you know, that's, and that's one of the, one of the bigger issues that we deal with as, as therapists when, when someone comes into the listening space is, is some people, the reason why they are not doing enough for themselves is that they're in this sort of, paralyzed space because their expectations for themselves are too mm -hmm. high because they think well but i should be able to read a book a week right you know and i'm like but do you actually have time to do that <laughs> yeah. well but i should you know so a lot of that so we have to change you know and of course should kind of thoughts are you know you're being 
extra critical and hard on yourself and that mm-hmm. always backfires. So um, so then that's often a problem with people is that they feel like, you know, they should be doing all these things, but then they're not and then they feel like they're failing and then it's like a vicious kind of a cycle. So I always say, let's keep it simple. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like just a recalibration is what that person needs. Exactly, yeah. But but I think as health uh, practitioners, like I think our role is is being the coach to help them along as they figure mm-hmm. out all those adjustments. Because yep. I think people know what they need to do. I think like my clients know they need to move more every day. Yeah. They know they need to eat better. Like I don't think we necessarily need a lot more, you know, research continues to refine our knowledge, but I don't think we need a lot more people no, it's know, not a lack telling of us, right? Yeah, it's not it's a lack, a lack of, of clarity and right. a lack of direction. Right. And those are like the two and, and sometimes even accountability, right? If you know right. you have someone to be accountable to and the goal is appropriate enough that you're not scared of doing it, yeah. that's a big one too. So it's like you're almost, yeah. you're a coach, you're a guide, you're an accountability, you're an empathetic Empathetic accountability is like that's a, big, a great way of saying because it. it's not harsh accountability. Right. It's making sure, you know, being on someone's side and saying, "Okay, well, we didn't accomplish this. Let's talk about what we can tweak so that it's easier to accomplish, or what we can change." You know, versus saying, "Oh, you didn't do this. Well, that sucks." Yeah, you know, it's like it's a different perspective. And I think the the empathetic accountability and the empathy mm-hmm. standpoint is something that I I really think is missing in a lot. Like I wish I would have instead of like you know, spending a crazy amount of time basically getting put to sleep by studying research methodology in physio school. Mm -hmm. Why don't we have courses on empathy? Why don't we have courses on coaching and troubleshooting with patients? Like I would have been, even without a huge amount of knowledge, I could have been so much more effective if I just knew Mm -hmm. that my role is to help someone gain clarity to solve a problem and empower them with some tools that they can implement Right. And not come to me to have them be implemented on them. Right. And that's empowering for people. Yeah, I'm always a little bit shocked uh, about any kind of profession that works directly with people that doesn't get training in establishing a therapeutic alliance, right? <laughs> because you so know crazy. Right, because in order to establish an alliance with someone, you can't be you can't be condescending. You can't say, Oh, well, I know more than you and tap them right. on the head kind of thing like you know, because people, you know, that creates resistance, right? You want, if someone wants to know that you know what you're doing, yet you're, as you said, you have empathy for their situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and also there's a firmness to you. You are going to hold them accountable. Exactly. because, And you are going to remind them that unless they make changes, they're not going to reach their goals. So mm-hmm. it's kind of like, okay, well, how can we tweak the game plan this week so that you can reach at least one of the things we set out? Exactly. You know, and then little by little, when they start to see those small successes, they build and then at some point there's like a a larger shift exactly right but uh, yeah and i read this in uh, i think it was said by mark ian barash and he wrote a book called the healing path he talks about helpers or health professionals should are facilitators of self-discovery so you're basically trying to help enable change and pry people away from their pathological life patterns that are creating the issues because people know the issues right but they don't identify the life patterns of behavior that they're doing to create those symptoms. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, you know, when you're in it, even if if you have your own issue, like when I've had my own issues, when you're in it, you can't acknowledge it. No. Because you're just in it. You just see the bad stuff. You get you're frustrated. You're just reactionary. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And there's no, there's no space to actually like respond to problems instead of just, like you said, reacting. Mm-hmm. Um, and having someone to help you create that space or acknowledge that that space needs to be created, that's really the 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 important element of having someone listening to you yeah. understanding you and then empathetically giving you guidance on 
okay, these are some things that we can change. Do you think, yeah. do you acknowledge that these things might be causing some of the problem? Yes. Here's how we, here are some strategies. Let's pick together what the best one is for you. Cause that's yeah. a very different paradigm than saying you have this, you need to do this or take this pill Correct. Or, or do this. It's yeah. like, let's troubleshoot together. Yeah. Collaborative. Exactly. That's people respond. Yep. Yeah. I agree. And like coaching change. So what does readiness mean to you? And if someone is not ready for change, what is your kind of algorithm for? Okay, well, how can I help this person become ready for change? Mm -hmm. And what are the big obstacles you see? Oh boy. Well, there's all... That was a lot of questions. <laughs> so, I'm sorry. No, that's okay. No, there's a lot of... I was going to say there's a lot of obstacles oftentimes that you have to help people move out of the way. But, you know... Just, you know, once people start talking and I listen over the first few sessions to kind of the cadence and patterns of what they're saying, you do, as you know yourself, you get a feel for how much a person feels empowered in their perspective and how much they may be just reacting to what's going on. And so if you're in a reacting mindset, typically you feel like a lot of things are happening to you, mm -hmm. right? You feel like a victim to things that are happening around you and you don't realize that you're not um you're kind, you're not kind of owning your own um ability to make changes like that people right. have no um awareness of that so th that would be the first oh, i would say the first step usually in helping people to become to, to make the shift from a victim mindset to one where you're willing to make changes. Mm -hmm. You look at yourself and say, okay, what can I do that, that could influence what's going on here? It requires, you know, and my job is to do a lot of listening and also pulling out, okay, well, what were you thinking about that? What were you feeling about that? And when people articulate how they're thinking and feeling, right, having the space to do that, that's what the processing and sorting feature is, right? And then I say, okay, let's do the detective work. Like, um, let's put everything out on the table and see what we have. And then let's look and see, you know, do I have a bit of control here that I could make a change? Do I have any control in this one? Is there any wiggle room? Mm -hmm. You know, um, like the example I gave before, which is I'm working 70 hours a week, but my body's breaking down. You know, can I ask my boss to like, you know, take on fewer assignments, those kinds of things. So, um, but it, but it starts with, with listening and helping people identify what they're feeling. Cause, cause it's, mm -hmm. it's quite a. Because otherwise you're it's lost. It's confusing. Like it, so, so a lot of it is, is coming to, that brings you a clarity, right? So, okay, I'm feeling this about this. Um, okay, I can, I have control over this in relation to this. Okay, can I make this change? So, um, what, but oftentimes for people that, it means a lot of time. Like it could be, hmm, for some people it could be four months. For some people it could be six months. For some people it's so confusing and, and there's so many stressors going on. It might take a year to finally do the the detective work to sort it all out. And then someone could be ready to say, okay, I'm willing to make, I'm willing to start with this goal and make some changes. Right. But until, unless, until they get that time where someone's understanding their frame of reference and helping them articulate, yeah, I am feeling angry about that. I, I don't look, like what's going on in this relationship and I need to be more assertive and I need to say, hey, I don't like that and see if the person responds, you know, like, mm -hmm. so, th you know, they start to see um, that they have some control over their life. And then, you know, I give them, you know, those kinds of assignments. They start to do them. They 
test them out. They do experiments. And uh, then they st- and so little by little, they start to see, hey, I have some agency. I, mm-hmm. I can make changes in my life, right? But oftentimes it can take, um, it, it just takes that time where they, you know, you have your coach who's got your back. They're there to support you, um, you know, and, and uh, then uh, people open up. The, the, some of those resistances melt and then they're willing to make some of those changes, changes right? Yeah, I think for a lot of people, the hesitance to change is actually, uh, well, from what I see, is is an awareness that they can actually change, right? Mm-hmm. Like if people have bought into the story that X is happening to them, it's a problem uh, with their brain or it's a problem with their body or this is a natural breakdown, you know, in terms of physical health, you have to essentially unlayer that story or disidentify them from the story that they've been told, that mm-hmm. they've bought into, and they're so they've bought into it for so long that the cognitive dissonance of extracting themselves and disidentifying from that story is extremely painful and and hard to do is scary mm-hmm. right well my whole life has been lived according to this story you're telling me a different one well right. i just don't want to listen to you yeah. and i think that especially is prevalent in the world of mental health where if you say something and give people uh ownership of being able to change it can sometimes be interpreted as they're saying my story is not important or my story is wrong. And so I don't want to listen to that person. And so, you know, that's where this role of the health professional being able to listen and interact with another human and build that trust. You take down the barrier of someone discounting what you're saying because it doesn't align with their story. And they can be trusting enough to accept that maybe there's a different story that I should be adopting. Yeah, their mind opens. Their mind opens. And that's, and some, and it's like the deeper someone is in that story, the harder it is to, to, like you said, the detective work can take a long time. Yeah. And also, like I forgot to mention that it's also challenging assumptions. Like what are the beliefs that you, what are the beliefs that you have around you? What are the beliefs that you take in? Like, what what do you actually believe is possible about your health or mm-hmm. about your about yourself? And so, th- we humans have a lot of mistaken beliefs. Um, those get perpetuated, you know, based on various agendas that are in our society, right? So, part of my job was also having people like, well, okay, let's examine that belief. How much is true? How much is not true? Right. And but it's my job is to give them is to teach people that you have a lot of agency. You can make different choices, and when you make different choices, you get different results. Exactly right. And and a lot of it is also you know um, I think it's teaching common sense to people. I think but I think people know that they just they just need the time and space to sort it and have a guide who's saying. Well, hey, remember when we did this, you get this result. And if you do this, you get this result, that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, but there's there are also a lot of factors that uh, play into people resisting change, right? Which is, you know, carving out the time mm-hmm. or, you know, um, beliefs that you have about yourself. Well, I should be able to juggle everything, right? So until you change that particular belief, if you have high expectations for yourself and that's going to get in the way both of you taking care of your health mm-hmm. and um, making the adjustments that you need to make because you just, the expectation is just doesn't match up with reality. So I'm always testing people's beliefs against, I'm like, but does that match up with reality? Like right. when you do this, what actually happens, you know, and does it have the result that you want? Well, no. Okay. Well, let's see how we can tweak it. And I think we have so much programming, you know, these limiting beliefs or this um, victim mindset, like these are, like sometimes deeply ingrained mm-hmm. 
I don't like the word subconscious because I think it gets thrown around a lot, but it mm-hmm. really is like below the level of immediate awareness, this programming that is, and sometimes that's like layered on like from when you're a kid. Yeah. And, oh, yes, conditioning. And yeah. like, I think that's a very, it's hard to uncover those things from the one person perspective and you need a, you need to have a teammate that can help you. Correct. And like that's, you know, whether I almost... People, whenever I fly, people always sit beside me, always ask what I do. And I just use it as an experiment to say something different every time to see what the reaction is. Right. And sometimes I've said, um, like a helper, I said one time. And they're like, what the hell does that mean? I was just like, I help people understand how to be healthy. Or sometimes I'll say like a coach or I, I pretty much never say therapist. And I just, I'm just curious to see where people's minds go. But mm-hmm. I really think that you're basically a teammate on someone's team or a coach or a guide or whatever you want to call it. And you're just helping them figure out what they're going to figure out and change on their own. But you're you're trying to help build a map for them. Yeah. Well, sometimes people don't figure it out on their own. They get more right. and more distressed and that leaves, leads people to some dangerous territory. Yeah. Um, or they go to people that don't necessarily draw them the map to figure out themselves that basically give them something that can feel good treating temporarily symptoms. Treating, treating symptoms, symptoms. exactly yeah. Yeah. that's exactly what it is yeah and so treating symptoms uh, does only works to a certain point mm-hmm. um but it doesn't get the whole picture right you know something that you mentioned um just a few sentences ago is that essentially that is what part of what my job is to see like what are all the conditioning um kinds of beliefs that you've heard and really like psychology can be um like therapy can be um the analogy can be it's really deprogramming. Yeah. It's removing all of the all of the things that are all of the beliefs um and the behaviors that you've built up that are not helping you achieve your goals that are, you know, in reality. So it is a lot of deprogramming, right? Mm-hmm. And so some of those messages come from religion, some of those come from our family, um, some of those come from society, you know, consumerism, all these things, you know, yep. do more, buy more, da, da, da. do I really need three cars, you know, well, to keep up with the, jo- if I have a belief that I need to keep up with the Joneses, otherwise, you know, if it's a, you know, uh, otherwise I'm not a good person. So right. like it's unraveling all that and, you know, so that's kind of the, the unpacking unraveling that we do is to get down to the bottom of, okay, like what do you really need? What is it that you actually want? And does your life and your current behaviors actually reflect that? And then people say, well, no. Okay, well, how do we, let's map out how to get there. Right. Yeah. And we're surrounded by it all the time. That's the crazy part. Oh yeah. It's, it's hard to sort out actually. <sighs> It is. Without and, a coach. And right? I remember I, I was listening to a podcast and they did this experiment in Brazil. They had a lot of people having, I believe it was like mental health issues in Brazil. And what they did was this drastic disruptive change. They said, we're going to take down all billboards. And it was a certain area where there was mm-hmm. a lot of premium brands advertising. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of ads with like slim people, fit people, um, all this kind of stuff. All this consumer. The, yeah. the typical consumer centric yeah. stuff. And when they took down all the billboards, everyone became happier. Oh my! Because how was, did they measure that? Like the happiness? I don't know. Like. I don't know. I, I should probably look. At, I should probably know that. But all I remember them saying was that the mental health problems had a steep decline right at the same time they took down the billboards, and it mm. like kept going to a certain. And it was a pretty high threshold that it got back up to in terms mm-hmm. of the incidence of people having um, anxiety or being depressed. And it was yeah. like literally just taking mm. away the comparison, the social comparison of constantly being bombarded by this ads. This is what you should look like. Yeah. And and yeah. like a lot of people don't think that that's affecting you, but oh, if that's all you see, 
it can be like this deeper programming layer yeah. um, that you don't even know is happening, but part of you can feel, oh, I'm not as good as that person or that person has a better life than me. And the yes. social comparison thing, I really think that social media, oh boy, any tool yeah. can be used for good or bad. Mm-hmm. And I'm not against any piece of technology. It's just like, I'm really not against anything because yeah. for the right person at the right time or using the right way, they can be good or bad. Right. Um, but I really think that there's a problem with this whole social comparison paradigm when it comes to social media and things like Instagram and Facebook especially. And it becomes a problem when the incentives of the companies that create these platforms are to to take your attention as much as possible. And if that attention is being put towards comparison, they're essentially incentivized to make you compare yourself to others. Yeah. And that's where... Yeah, it's a, it's a slippery slope. That's unethical media. territory, right? Really? Yeah, and I, and I don't think that the intention was to get there. I think that like social wiring in the human brain is like this thing that we don't understand completely. Um, I don't know if we ever will, but it's a very powerful force. I think it's one of the most powerful forces, you know, even more than food, even oh, more. Very. Like yeah. we're social beings. And if you hack the, the human brain and these circuits that trigger the dopamine releases or that trigger this sense of, of of something feeling something through social connection or mm-hmm. through social comparison that's a that's a really dangerous thing to hack when you don't really know what you're doing <laughs> right well it's all the more reason to make sure that you have a coach in your life and i don't care if it's a therapist i don't care if it's like a, a friend and you coach your each other yep. um you know some type of a mentor your your physician your physiotherapist uh um but you need someone to help you sort through all of that static because yeah. um, part of our job, I think, is of, as coaches is basically to say you own where you place your attention. Mm-hmm. So start to do it mindfully and consciously. Yeah. Right. Because I think like I think the reason why we operate like on a, you know, and I, you know, that term, I agree with you, the subconscious kind of a level is because. If we tried to keep every single thing conscious, we wouldn't get anything done. Like, yeah, you know it's efficiency. I mean? Yeah, exactly. It's efficiency, right? But I mean, you have to have you have to take some time each week, each I don't know, each month, where you just examine, okay, where is my attention going to? Right. Like, and is that where I want it to be going to? Mm-hmm. You know, like you and you might say, like I have my clients say, like, I, I just realized that I've spent like four hours on Facebook yeah. this week. And I saw, you know, and, 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 you know, and, and then I'm, and I'm feeling worse about myself, you know? And so I'm like, okay, well, how do we, what do you want to do with that? Like, I'm assuming you want <laughs> like to pay- just ask them a question. <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> what do you think about that? Well, yeah. Like, and you know, do you want to pare it down? Do you want to like, what, what do you, what, and, you know, they're like, yeah, I don't, I, I think that's way too much time. I, I could be, and then they say, well, I, I have no excuse that I didn't do my exercise this week because I had the time, but I didn't realize it was being stolen or I was giving it away. Right. So, like teaching people again to be more mindful of like well where are you placing your attention you know because there are so many different threads in the world vying for our attention for different reasons for consumerism for you know um so we have control over that for sure and like i realized it myself that doing a time inventory of where your time actually goes is something i recommend everyone does because yes there's some effort of like writing stuff down or journaling like where is my time going but I realized that my life was basically being run by my email inbox. Right. And I was like, oh my, how did this happen? Right. That's You're sneak, not aware of it. It sneaks up on you. Yes, it does. So so even if you like, even if you just take a week 
every you know week tw- uh, like a, examine a week tw- twice right. a year Do a you'll case still study. be yeah exactly and you'll Even be like day. you'll be like wow did i really did i really watch 4 hours of tv <laughs> I, I catch myself doing it's that shocking. and then i'm like and it wasn't even quality tv and you know what i mean like <laughs> it it's just it stuff. was just me wanting to like just zone out or just relax at the right. end of a day and then i thought you know what i have no you know if my trainer is saying you could have done this extra homework i could have done that extra homework right. you know and um, it's not being hard on yourself i think that's no. another thing is not is like looking at it and be like holy shit i spent way too much time doing that yeah that's okay i acknowledge that's it that's the aware wake up call yeah and maybe i'm still going to spend some time doing it because it's not like never decompress never right you know go on autopilot watch something entertaining that's not the case it's like tweaking the amount yeah exactly yeah. adjust the recipe a little bit to find your optimal composition right and actually what you just said there adjusting the recipe is something that we need to be doing on a regular basis in yeah. order to for like optimal health optimal mm-hmm. um you know meeting our goals in life you know mm-hmm. what what do we want out of this life right exactly and so you have to examine at some point and say okay am i on track or am i not on track and oftentimes well we can never be you know perfectly on track it but it, but it's yeah adjusting the recipe and that's a process and so essentially a good te- a, a good coach teaches a person that so that they don't need you as much in the future maybe right. they need a booster like i have clients you know i might see them for Six months or a year, a year and a half, they they learn what they need to learn and then um, they go off and see how it works and mm-hmm. if, if they're better. But oftentimes clients will say, you know, I've got some stressors going on. Can I come back and see you yeah. for a couple of months? Or they might come back um, once every two months because they enjoy the process of someone giving you their full attention and they can, you know, sort out their feelings and, you know, m- how to make those tweaks. They they right. get, you know, that session with the coach. So they might only need you like six times a year, but they like, it's, I'm always shocked at how much people um, like the support. Like I have. And I like knowing it's there. That's yeah, important, I think. Yeah, that someone, someone genuinely cares, mm-hmm. you know, because I think, I think our family deep down genuinely cares. They don't always know the best ways of showing it in right. the ways that particular people need like i know i am you know um thankful and 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 uh you know constantly um amazed at how much uh my clients express to me um just how much they're enjoying the process like and they you know i have some i had some tough military guys that come in when they first come in and they say you know well, I'm not going to tell you anything, and I don't think I don't think I believe <laughs> in this. And I, but yeah, but I'm like, but thank you for the honesty. I always say, you know, like, I, I really they're like I don't know why I'm here, and I don't really want to be here, and I and I don't really want to tell you anything. And 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 so I'm like, okay, well, let's just we'll we'll just see how it goes, kind yeah. of thing, you know. And then in the you know, some often by the second third session, and you know, and I always check in and say, okay, well, how are you finding it? What do you think of it? And I tell them like. Be totally honest. I'm not going to be offended. And they will say, you know what? I actually kind of like this thing. <laughs> you know, and, and they will say, I'm surprised. I'm surprised that I like someone listening to me, you know? And uh, so I think, it, you know, I would say to people, like, try different things. You never know what's mm-hmm. going to work mm-hmm. for you, you know? And no so. one's, like, you're your best, you're your best source of feedback. You're the only one that lives inside your body. Right. And knows how your brain feels and knows how your body feels. You are your best scientist. If you if you give someone the gift of understanding the tool of science, and really the tool of science is test something, write down how you feel or test something, do something different, reassess how you feel. Yeah. Like that is science. Like people think science means like someone in a test tube, someone in a lab looking at a test tube or reading research articles. No. Science is doing experiments on yourself and objectively seeing did 
what my intervention was actually accomplished what I wanted it to. Did the change that I made in my life actually improve how I feel? And like mm -hmm. this feedback, this internal feedback language, I think has been so ingrained out of people that sometimes being a coach means helping someone tune relearn in, that language. In. Yeah. And, and it's like, you're right. It's this very weird thing where the most, I, I used to look at the really resistant people. I was like, oh God, this is going to be, mm. this is going to suck. But now mm. it's like, ooh, perfect. I might be the only person that can help this person self-realize because it's really, they don't want to be told what to do. They want to self-realize the shit that they need to do that no one's really been, you know, trusting enough or, or stern enough to make sure they realize. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, no, those are those are the best kinds of challenges. Because, you know, like someone who's, you know, very prickly and has a lot of walls up is very hurt prickly, deep down, I right? Like right? Like they're very, there's, there's a very like soft hurt core in there typically, yep. you know, but they don't want to look at all of that, right? And so if you have, uh, the therapeutic alliance is really just the sense that a person has that you're going to stick it out with them. Mm -hmm. You're not going to... Burn it for the long run. You know, because sometimes when, um, in particular in my field, if, uh, you know, we have to explain to people, this is what we have to offer you, this is how long it typically takes, da-da-da. So sometimes therapists will offer, they'll say, you know, this is a 12-session protocol, this is a 16-session protocol. Invariably, uh, I mean, or not, um, typically what you hear is the response to that is, but what happens after six weeks? Will you still be there? Can I still come to see? You know what I mean? Like people need a lot of like people. I think part of what we need a lot of in these times, or maybe we always have needed, is care. We need someone. We know someone has our back that they're not going to abandon because the system says, "Well, I can only give you right. sixteen sessions." That kind of thing. So, um, because that's a big uh, part of it is that um, the people, you know, the, of the feeling of. This person has my back. I can totally trust this person. Right. You know, they're, they're going to be there when I need someone or they're going to, even if they can't give me the time, they're going to make sure that they, they, you know, refer me on to someone or, an, you know, another spot where I, at least I'll be supported or, or right. at least if I, if, if I can't see her every week, I can see her every month or, yeah, you know, and give them, yeah, you're just giving them like confidence and comfort that, like you said, that you're there, you're going to stick it out with them. Mm -hmm. You're on their team. I think like sometimes the really prickly people, you almost, not with the language you use, like don't talk down to them, but you almost have to treat them like this is a seven-year-old kid that just wants someone to understand what what's happening and help mm -hmm. guide them because they don't know what to do. That really applies to all of us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I agree, I agree. Yeah, a little bit more, maybe a little more so with, you know, people who have a lot of walls built up. But I always say, I just want to know how those walls got built up. Yeah. Because once you start walking around in their shoes, you're like, yep, I get it. I get why you have. Like, I would be like that too. A hundred walls up. You're yep. at, exactly. So, and if you try and just smash the walls down, you just find another wall. Oh my Or goodness. a stronger wall. And it's considered, you know, this is why um, in quality therapy, we don't remove defenses quickly. Uh, there's a, you know, it's actually not a good idea. It's It can be dangerous, right? Mm -hmm. So people can can get overwhelmed with emotion um, and mm, and actually point. get more distressed when those defenses are taken down too quickly. So that's part of the the art and the finesse of it as well. Like, you know, it's determining, can this person tolerate a 12-week protocol? And, mm. and um, you know, where you're, uh, where it's very, very focused uh, and like, what is that going to do to their defenses? You know, like maybe they'll be ready for it after a year of, of some time where, you know, they have, 
you know, at least you're doing a proper monitoring of like, okay, I'll give them this experiment and I'll see how they do. Mm -hmm. Did they tolerate it or did they, did they get worse? Or do I have to, you know, a lot of people need emotion management skills before they can tolerate other good things that are going to help them, right? Right. Because those defenses are there for a reason. I always say to people like, we want to keep some of those. We just want to tweak them, right? Mm -hmm. Like we don't want them to be kind of consuming your life. We want them to be choices that you use. Like oftentimes people become very disconnected. It's That disconnect is not that very far from healthy detachment. So Mm -hmm. I was telling them we want to change the valence of it. Right, because disconnection is like more along the lines of you know the negative valence, especially if people are reporting that um, you know it's impacting their relationships and they're just very distant from everybody. Right, but that's that's how they've been coping with the stresses that are going on in their life. So I would say to them, okay, well, we want to take it, we want to move it from there to like healthy detachment is where you are. You actually make a choice um, to say, okay, I need to go offline. Mm-hmm. Right. But it's it does it's you you use it wisely. You you're not using it all the time. Right. Right. So people don't realize that they're using that kind of a you know, coping tool of detachment or disconnection all of the time. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's it's helping them to, you know, move it towards that valence, right? But uh And when they have more tools, they can be more selective with how these different tools are used instead of just having one option exactly which rules everything yeah and oftentimes because of the times we live in or because of the experiences you know some people have had quite a lot of awful experiences and yeah. so um it makes and i would say to them it makes sense that you disconnect so much how else would you have survived mm-hmm. you know a lot of this is you know defenses and walls have to do with survival and um you know you can't you can't just take those down willy-nilly like they that has to be they have to be respected and, and right. honored and once someone also hears that you you're respecting and honoring those then they're more likely to listen to what you have to say because they know that you're also taking care of them in the process so that's not typically something that can be easily done in 16 sessions for most yeah yeah, for for people who are functioning mainly well but they have a particular problem yes but um i end up seeing a lot of people who've had a lot of distress piling up for many years and it's just not um accomplishable in like a short period of time. Um, you can, you know, the model I kind of use is I start off with 10 to 20 sessions, which is, I think, probably could, I, I don't know, I, I don't spend enough time. We're all grain silos, it seems to be in psychology, you know, like always consulting with, you know, what is the state of where my colleagues are at um, in terms of the processes of how they work. But I'd say the first 10 sessions at least, I focus mainly on building the therapeutic alliance mm-hmm. and it, it builds along uh, along the way. And then I'm just observing and, I, and then I start to, to give, you know, small assignments and see how people do with them. And then that tells me, you know, how quickly I can then offer them other things. Mm-hmm. You know, when you start there and then I may give them a protocol where, okay, we're going to like challenge your ways of thinking, your mindset. Yeah. But, it, or, you know, people have to be ready for that. So... It's a lot of, you know, detective work to make sure that, you know, okay, who am I dealing with and what mm-hmm. can they handle and, right. you know, what time can they carve, carve out realistically. And um, sometimes you have to go slow and right. that's nothing wrong with that. It's yeah, just- a couple of things that, you're, that you spoke with there that I want to tease out. Number one, the, I really think that was powerful when you said taking down all the walls at once mm. is actually sometimes the worst thing, right? If you look at yep. 
walls as adaptations, behavioral adaptations this person has developed to cope with whatever scenario they were in. It's kind of like having a life raft. Like mm -hmm. there was nothing around. So they just lynched onto this life raft, which maybe long term is not a, a good thing. Right. Right. Because you never learn how to swim if you're always lynched right. on this life raft. But if you just steal the life raft away from someone that doesn't know how to swim, they're screwed. They're yeah. even worse off. So yeah. it's like this very. And then the other part of that is. Um, oh, I can't even remember what I was going to talk about. Yeah. But that that imagery went into my brain when you're talking yeah. about that, because a lot of people think, well, we just got to get rid of the bad behaviors. But it's like those are healthy adaptations to a yeah. bad situation. Yeah. And until we give someone more tools, they they need that and have to be weaned away from it slowly so that they feel confident and they're not more scared. Correct. The same thing with medication. Right. So. Um, right. That's I, another good analogy. I always say to people because, you know, people will say to me, I don't know if my medication is effective. So my first usually what I say to them is say, OK, well, go to go to go back to the expert, go to your GP, go to your psychiatrist, see what they both have to say. Maybe they'll tweak it. Maybe they'll try another one. And so they may have a few um, trials of that. Um, but as I said, at some point, people, you know, they uh, I think people achieve the longer they are in therapy, they start to or over time as they watch, they do their experiment to say, OK, this is either working for me or it's not working for me. Then people are more ready to say, OK. I don't want to be dependent on this substance, which is helping me. I want to help myself. Right. Right. So that's a big frame shift. Yeah. Thinking. Yeah. So, but as I say to them, I say, well, I'm not going to advise you to go off your medication. I'm like, A, most medications have to come, you have to come off gradually and you need the monitoring of your GP. I've had to get, you know, I have to get very stern with some of my mm -hmm. clients because they're like, well, I'm just going to go off of them this weekend. I'm like, no, no, because <laughs> you weekend. can harm yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, they're, and they're like, oh, I'm thinking of going off of them. I'm like, you are not going off of that unless you tell your GP, right. tell your psychiatrist because they have to monitor it. You have to be very careful with those things. Um, That's a slippery slope because I think, you know, one thing this uh, Kelly Brogan talks about in her book is that when people go off their meds and start to do really badly, people take that sometimes as an indicator that, oh, the meds are gone. Mm. So they're going back to being problematic. The meds need to go back. Right. We underestimate the withdrawal yeah. process from these very powerful neurochemicals mm -hmm. that we're putting in people's brains. We don't completely understand what they're doing. We know they're doing something, right? Yeah. If subjectively someone feels better, it's doing something. Mm -hmm. Um but you're right. Like th these are very powerful chemicals, and it's yeah. it's not something you're just like, oh, I I want to stop taking them. Okay, making the decision to stop taking them is the is gets the ball rolling to then plan out how that happens. Yeah, it's and not you a have decision. to do you have to do it smart, like like yeah. anything, right? Um, so so that you in most cases those have to come. You have to come off them quite gradually. You need the um, monitoring of an expert, which is a physician. And, um, and then I say, well, I'm, you know, they'll say, well, what do you think? Should I go off my medication? And, and so it, it, it depends. It depends how long someone's been on it. And then I always say, normally that's a, a golden opportunity for me to say, well, if, <laughs> <laughs> if you were to be more consistent with your exercise and with your eating yeah. and with you know, putting in your um, training your brain with some meditation on a you regular build basis. Resilience. Yeah. So I said, so I will say to them, okay, you've been doing some of that training. You're doing not too bad. Um, I would, and then, so I'll say, yeah, I think it's, um, I think that you could try now that you have some of the skills built up. 
um, let's you 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 know with the help of your physician, yes, try going off of them if if you like, and and then see what happens. But to most of my clients, I always tell them no. You're I would advise you don't go off them right now because you don't have the skills built up. That's so and that, powerful, and that's the golden opportunity for me to say, okay, let's actually have you start sticking to the homework. Right. You know, let's start small. Let's let's give you the let's earn the ability to go off. these. Right. Exactly. And so I said, you have to show me over the course of this six months or this year mm-hmm. that you're actually, you know, doing the homework consistently. You're moving every day. You're right. doing you're doing um, five minutes of meditation in the morning and five in the evening. And you're seeing some results from that because it would be stupid to right to just you know make a a rash decision and say ah, i don't need these anymore i've right. seen people do that and they have very severe reactions and it's scary and people can lose their lives for sure over doing that you have to be very careful um you have to be responsible and you also just have to be logical of like okay and and i think someone saying do you think i should go off my meds is probably a very telling thing saying this is on this person's radar like they they're seeing they're, this is now an option for this person. Yeah. Right. You have to usher them making that decision on their own. Yeah. But you also have to guide them on how best to make that decision, how best to execute on that decision. Yes. Because it's it's all good intent. Goals are great, but the system you use to get to that goal determines whether you reach it or not, or whether whether it's a you know a good experience or a really bad one. Correct. Because last thing you want is someone to go off their meds, feel absolutely terrible. Yeah. And reinforce the belief that the meds are what's making them better. Yeah. Because that's even counterproductive. Well, you know, if you look at the studies, actually, um, the studies will show you that, um, well, A, exercise is superior to any antidepressant. B, um, usually a combination of, if you are taking meds, meds alone typically don't have as much effectiveness unless you're in therapy. Therapy means you're making changes in your life, right? right? So, right. So, um, which makes sense. Yeah. I think anyone would I don't think anyone would disagree with that. Yeah. Um I think people's perception of therapy like what are some common misconceptions of therapy that you feel are out there that mm. you know cuz like when you talk to me about it I think everyone people watch movies, right? And in a lot of movies you'll see someone going to a therapist. Why do they call it a shrink? What mm. is shrink? Well, they basically <laughs> Where did that come from? Yeah, I know some people it's kind of it's quite the slang um um some of my clients call me their shrink and I just laugh. I find it, I always love the interesting terms. Shrinking their problems, maybe? Well, basically you're just shrink. it's a head shrink. Like okay, shrinking okay. your head, meaning okay. like you're just, you're you're paring down and clarifying what's in there and simplifying it, right? Okay, so it's actually kind sense. of a, it may, it's a cool analogy in a way. I was like, I thought about that. I'm like, is it shrinking your ego? Is it shrinking well, your all problems? Of, or all of those. All of the above. All <laughs> those things. I think that's what people mean by your head is shrinking, right? right. Like you're just simplifying. So that you get to your goals, right? right? That kind of thing. Misconceptions about therapy. Um, but what I was going to say is everyone's got this picture of yeah. you sit on a couch, someone yeah. listens to you with a notebook and tells you what your problems are. Yeah. But I think that's that's a, that's not the reality. No. And I, you know, honestly, I think that the perceptions are starting to change. I don't think there are as many misconceptions out there, obviously, as there once were. Right. I think people, most people, when they come to therapy, they know that... They will say in the first couple of sessions, they're like, yeah, I know I need to change. You know, they, they're not expecting like a cure. Right. Um, okay, good. So they're going in with yeah, expectations I'd say, that are I'd say that it's I'd say that it's changed, but but they will say, but I'm not ready yet to make, <laughs> I'm not ready yet to make those changes. And I'm like, That's yeah. why you're here. Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, other misconceptions, I'd say, I, I wouldn't say that we're positively portrayed in most movies and all those kinds of things, but you know, that's the that's the norm for we're all. We're portrayed as helpers. I mean, it, I think it's... Uh, 
Sometimes. I don't think there's a negative connotation. I just think people's, I think if people knew what actually happens in therapy, more people would understand that they can benefit from it. Right. And I think like mental health, I look at as the spectrum where there's like, okay, like the most exuberant, happy person, if they're actually like that inside. And then you have the depressed person that is contemplating suicide. No, that's the spectrum. And I think people think that if you're not at the the bad extreme of the spectrum, then there's no benefit for you to to have someone coach you mm, on how to improve mm-hmm, your life. Mm-hmm. And I think that that creates this paradigm where like you wait until things are so right. bad that you it's then harder to get out of the hole. Whereas I think a lot of people, and I think it's becoming more commonly acceptable now. It's like ah, something doesn't feel right. I'm going to go speak to someone that can help me troubleshoot my life. Yeah, that's really what therapy is. It's not I'm mentally ill. Like I, I always tell people, some days I'm mentally ill. I'm not in a good headspace. Mm-hmm. My mood is off, and sometimes I don't even know why. Mm-hmm. So everyone goes through ebbs and flows where their mental health is good and bad, and the goal is to get more good than bad. But it's also like you have to work on your mental health every day, right? Yeah. Like what's meditation? It's mental health work. And if you're not doing it, if you're not acknowledging that mental health is something that's a dynamic thing and you got to ebb and flow and keep yourself on the right side of that spectrum um then a lot of people just wait until it's a big problem and I you, don't think you know you just described that excellently can i oh, just say you. that to you yeah you did a really good job of that yeah essentially like i would say yeah you're right some people think that you know i don't need help with my mental health unless it gets severe but i would say some people kind of have like inklings that they know they need to but they want to try everything they can themselves before right. they go to get help like i think most humans are like that which i think is noble it's yeah, good yeah yeah no i don't think it's necessarily you know i th- just think that's the way that we are. Um, but as you say, I, I the, you know, the point that you're making there really um, brings up another essential point that I would always want to mention in any kind of talk about mental health, which is that you said, you know, you need to like examine yourself. You need to look at, mm-hmm. okay, where is my mental health at today? What tweaks do I need to make to get it back on track? That kind of thing. So in order to do that, you need like what I term like a, People who are well-functioning and can see when they're off track, they have access to what I call like a higher order mental process. And typically, you know, and this is how I describe it to my clients. I say that's, I think what, when the Buddhists talk about um, the observer self, essentially that's one of the big things that we're building in therapy. It's Mm -hmm. that larger perspective where you can actually watch your thoughts, watch your feelings, watch all the patterns in your life. And then you can stand back and go, hmm, Maybe that's why I don't feel good today, or maybe that's why I feel particularly sad, you know, or, oh, oh, look at all the, there come back those self-critical thoughts, right? But if you don't have, like, I, I just call it a higher order kind of a process, right? The, um, that kind of detached part of the mind that can observe what's going on. I think that's kind of one of the key essentials of having mental health of any kind is that you have, that's a skill, examine yourself it's a portion of our brain but i think many many humans don't uh, it never gets developed or you don't get access to it or you might get glimpses of it and mm-hmm. so you know some of my clients are like what's all this mindfulness like what are you therapists <laughs> are just obsessed with mindfulness and meditation and they're like that's all the homework i ever get from any of the therapists that are, you know and i said well there's an actual really important reason for that because it builds this uh awareness this higher awareness of yourself and without that how can you actually see if you're on track or you're not on track? And that's that that being in tune with yourself, right? Like, 
right um the self-awareness essentially and i always think of uh like I always used to think sometimes I have conversations with myself and I used to be like, am I, am I a crazy person? Like, do people, do, are other people thinking this stuff too? And yeah. then I realized that like the conversations I have with myself are essentially this inner therapist, this inner like, you know, examiner yep. that every single time I examine what I'm doing and determine a better way to doing it, I'm building up that inner therapist's uh, competence to be able to help direct me better. And I feel like when you yeah. go to therapy, you're building, you're going there to train your own personal therapist that's totally. in your brain yeah. that can constantly be with you, that can constantly make little course corrections. And I, yeah, I agree. It's, I, I, I'm a bit, you know, it's funny. Even before I started working with um, military personnel, I, I always have liked sports and military analogies. Don't know why. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe. They just maybe, resonate with you. Maybe, maybe. But I always call it the commander in chief of your mind. And I always <laughs> say, you don't have a commander in chief. You've lost touch with the commander in chief. Uh, right. Yeah. And the, right. Because you have to know where do you direct a quarterback. The tr- yeah, exactly. Yeah. Where do you direct the troops every day? Right. Like, do I really want, like I always, for myself, like I always say, do you really want to spend three hours being angry about that? Mm-hmm. No, because then I won't get this report done or I won't right. have my full attention or concentration or it's going to be compromised, right? So you have to be able to be aware of like, boy, I'm real, I'm still angry after two hours? Like, okay, that's enough, right? You know, yeah. but the, it's only the commander in chief that can say that, right? And, and bring you back to, okay, no, that's not a good use of my energy right now. Yeah. You know, I'm going to, you know, and so then you, you, Put yourself back onto a better track, mm-hmm. which is no, I want to focus on this. So it's like, okay, leave that. Or like, that's enough. We've done with that. But and if you don't um, have that, um, you really can't get a handle on your mental health. It's like essential. And so people who've gone through, we know that people who've gone through a lot of abusive or traumatic experiences, especially when they're younger, they either don't develop it or they don't develop access to that part. So that's actually a big part of what therapy is, is is giving people homework and then also the ther- within the relationship with your therapist, you're developing that larger perspective, the one that hmm. is the overseer that right, can... The observer. Yeah, exactly. The observer who... What, what was your term again? I can't remember what you just said there. I liked well, your term. Well, it's like the inner therapist. Inner therapist. Exactly. Because that's... So that's what's essential for teaching a person the process of coaching themselves. Inner right. coach, right? Because like you said, you're trying to basically put yourself out of work every time yes. you see someone because you're trying to empower them with being able to essentially generate the guidance internally and and understand like maybe they don't have all the answers but they know how to experiment i love that you say experiment because yeah. that's really that is the way that i uh, you know everyone we when we do these seminars people always come up and they're like i have this pain what do i do mm-hmm. and i say well let's talk about common things that contribute Try to that something, yeah. and then here's some experiments you can start to run these are not the answers these are how you get to the answer mm-hmm. and I, that's a very different answer than i used than i would have used to have given which is try and micromanage everything this person is doing to eliminate the bad variables where it's like just experiment Mm -hmm. because that process of experimentation is actually the therapy it's not even like the end thing that they do that works it's the that's where you get your information the ability to feel empowered that you can experiment yeah and and back to this one thing where like i always think back to this thing with anger where you're like oh it's three hours i'm still angry or frustrated about this I, i have this like stage in my brain where i go through where it's like you either you can choose to either sweep it or clear it. So sweep it is like shelf it to the side, yeah. ignore deal it, with it later. deal with it later. Yeah. And a lot of times what I found is the stuff that gets swept away doesn't actually get dealt with. It just bottles up until shit is overwhelming. It can. 
And sometimes like the only difference between sweeping and clearing is just saying that happened. What can I do to learn from it in future? It's not going to affect me anymore. I'm just going to make the choice, yeah. the conscious choice to not let it affect me because there's nothing more that I can do with it. Right. This happened. Right. It's a lesson. It sucks or sometimes it sucks a lot, yeah. but it's like if there's nothing else to be done there, I don't need to divert mental energy to that because it, like you said, it takes away from mental energy that can be put towards things that actually what you're presently doing yeah or make yeah. me happy it's like yeah. if you're upset about something and it's coming at the expense of making of not letting you be happy well that's not a good trade-off but unless you have the conversations with yourself and examine that and and the validity of why you're still angry about that it's like well is it because i haven't changed something i know i need to change and a lot yeah. of times that's it yeah so these are the conversations that you have with your therapist it's like exactly. yeah why am i still ang- why am i <laughs> angry so much or why why, you know, like what's going on? Why did, Why am I holding on to this, right? right? You know, and then, and and oftentimes it comes down to like in the moment when you notice that you're angry, right? You're say, you, you have to say, okay, I have to shelf this, right? Mm-hmm. And, but you do have to spend some time at some point right. examining that. And oftentimes people need help. And so Allah, that's my job, right? Which is to help you to do the sorting. Um, or find the time to do the sorting. Because yeah. being- Well, you're scheduling an hour a week with right? someone to do the sorting exactly. essentially is what, exactly. you know, like, and so um, I realized I didn't answer an earlier question that you had, which is like, you know, what can people expect from therapy, right? right? Yeah. Like, what does it actually look like? Um, well, typically when people come in, um, as I say, the first 10 sessions I'm doing, maybe the first session or two, I'm doing a little bit of writing. I'm taking some notes about major points that are, coming out as you're talking but really in the first um 10 sessions and most of the sessions after that i'm not doing any writing i'm listening and i'm my men- my memory recording devices <laughs> is working and um so i'm building the alliance and so people just get a chance to like f- free form talk cool uh, that's where I gather information of like, what are the patterns, you know, and I'll ask people, okay, you know, what is your understanding of like, why are you here? What do you mm-hmm. want? What is the problem? What do you want to work on? Mm. What are the goals that you have? Um, you know, and then my job is to help. And I would say to people, my job is to help see what are the blocks to you getting what you want. But, you know, there, there can be many different levels of blocks that we have built up some of them yeah exactly some of those are our defenses and we don't want to remove them quickly um you know so and so i say to people well if you want this to work and you do you know want to feel better at the end of this it does require some work so that's uh you know and and then they say well what kind of work and i will say Essentially, it's behavioral change. We want to change your thoughts. You have to make different behaviors if you want different results. And I say to them, you know, at some point there's going to be homework assigned um, because if you don't um, examine your thought patterns and look at, you know, like you said, you look at your, where's my time going in a week, then you're not going to get what you want because you know you have to make tweaks, right? Mm -hmm. So I will say, yeah, it it can be a lot of work um, at, at different points. Um, but it's worth a menu of like work levels. It's like, these are all the different work things that we can do. This is the most ambitious one, but this is the easiest one. Right. And I think sometimes start small and people discount, um, the value of starting small and myself included. I do too sometimes. Yeah. And it's like, well, that, that is so small that it can't possibly result in a change. But what they don't know is the consistency effect gives exponential change. If you're actually consistent. Yeah. And the only thing you should be trying to do is something you're actually committed to being able to be consistent doing. But also it starts to ingrain, it starts to reinforce the fact that you make a goal, you accomplish it, you have more power to achieve a bigger goal if you have the confidence behind you that 
I chose this and I did this. Now I can do this. Small successes. And it just snowballs. Build confidence, it, yeah. It, yeah, and I think that's yep. something we try to emphasize at every seminar we do is like start small. It's better to start way smaller than what you think you can accomplish than go way bigger and then be shut down. Be disappointed that you failed. And you can yeah. always do more. It's like cutting your hair. If you cut a little bit off, that's okay. You can always cut more. But if you cut it all off, you can't go back and put it back on. <laughs> it's a, bit it's a one-way yeah. route. Yes, um, yes. Yeah, and I just think... People just need to be more realistic sometimes with their, you know, short-term goals. Mm -hmm. Knowing where the long-term vision is, is great. But, you know, being able to create the menu of options, I think, is where this guide role comes in. Where it's like, mm -hmm. this is where we want to get to, but this is what we can start with tonight or the coach, tomorrow. The coach shows you what's actually realistic. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember in physio school, back, one of the things that you said, but just asking questions and listening. I remember in physio school, one of the professors said, if you ask the right questions and if you ask enough questions, the patient will tell you exactly what's wrong. Mm -hmm. And I think I, it kind of fell on deaf ears initially when you're in school, but I slowly realized that it's so true. It's like when someone tells me they have pain, I just say, well, why do you, why do you think it's there? Mm -hmm. And then I just wait an uncomfortable amount of time until they say the first word. And you see the kind of hamster wheel going in the brain. Well, it's like shit, I didn't think he was going to ask me that. But you know what? I did something yesterday. And they start to like essentially figure out the problem themselves. Yeah. Because you said nothing. You're just like, well, why do you think it's there? You know, what did you do? Uh, do you usually do that? And it's like, you're literally just assisting them in a problem solving Figuring. structure. Yeah. And when I talked to you on the phone three weeks ago, you the most impactful thing that you said was, I teach people to be better thinkers. Mm -hmm. I teach people to be better critical thinkers of like having a process for problem solving, not being told the solutions to their problem, but being given kind of a pathway of how to problem solve. And mm -hmm. that is like the, this is something that I wish was taught in school, in high school and mm -hmm. university of just, instead of telling you what to know, what knowledge to know, help you understand how to figure out how to find the right knowledge. Yes. And I think that's, so that's really what good parenting is from yes. the very beginning, right? Like. You, your parent isn't rushing in to give you the solution. They go, well, what do you think? Mm -hmm. You know, like, uh, you know, um, we'll test it out and see what happens, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and, and then because you want to empower your kid. You want your kid to have their own self-confidence, right? So, and, and then you say, well, I'm sure you'll figure it out. Yeah. That's what my dad used to say to me. Well, I'm sure you'll figure it out. <laughs> and I'm here if you don't. And I can, right. I can, and I can tell, I can give you some ideas. Because you know? then every failed experiment is, a, is like ruling out an option. It's no longer failure. And it's no longer something to be afraid of. It's yeah. just, well, that didn't go as I planned. Well, I, I'm not going to do that again. Or next next route, you know? Yeah, and I think that this is a big, this is a big underpinning of um, like your own empowerment, like feeling powerful over something as well as, oh, there was a thread that I was going to mention about, um, oh, what was it about now? Oh, keep going. I'll Maybe I'll get back to it. Yeah, I just, well, I just think in general people are, and you see... Um, in a lot of social media discussions, sloppy thinking, like lazy thinking, where people jump to a conclusion or are trying to just defend their position and there's no room for dialogue. There's no room for... Yeah. Um, I, I really think the art of thoughtful disagreement has kind of like vanished where now we're just arguing, right? And I always tell, like with the Health Nerd program, it's this group of people around the world that just want to do better when it comes to health. Yeah. And I always tell them like, thoughtful disagreement is actually what's necessary to find the truth. If everyone's, yeah. if everyone's afraid to disagree with each other, we never oh. see different perspectives. And Impossible. I think it's, yeah. we don't always have to agree. You and me can disagree on something and we can have a conversation and we can hug and say, see you later to each other. Right. 
and still be friends. But like the modern day social media arena of discussion literally seems like a shit fight that is just completely out of control because Mm -hmm. and i think it's because it misses like human context right like there's Mm -hmm. no nuance there's no um there's no intonation there's no human language there's no interaction right and i think it's such a artificial way of communicating that it's making people become poor thinkers because they're not having to actually flex the muscles of well, how am I interacting with this human, not just like some something typing words in the matrix? Right. And um, also like a, a skill of being a good, you know, like a good thinker is being able to suspend your frame of reference and your opinions and the way you look at them yeah. to be able to hear what another person is saying from another frame of reference. Right. And also saying there's not a competition between frames of references, mm-hmm. right? Because I think people get in, it becomes an ego competition. Well, I need to be right and yep. I need to make you yours. wrong. And, yep. you know, and it's not really about that at all. Like, I think when people are like emotionally secure, they don't need to do that. Like you're just, you're interested in hearing like, oh, wow, that's a new perspective. I never thought of that before. Yeah. I'm, I'm really curious. Tell me more, you know? If your goal is learning then hearing disagreements is actually a treat because you're like hmm, i wonder if i've examined that perspective right because it will ref- you you understand that you need it to refine your own thinking on something because if you're approaching any kind of discussion as if you know everything you know nothing right exactly right so and you have to disidentify from uh your ideas also or your thoughts right like people with these uh nutrition or, or food ideologies where they identify as being a person that doesn't eat meat there's nothing wrong with there's nothing with wrong with not eating meat like you can have whatever viewpoint you want but when you identify it so that that is part of your personality and anyone that challenges that viewpoint is challenging your personality not yeah. just an idea a concept right then it it literally removes any ability to have like a good human discussion to figure out what the truth is regardless yeah. of what position you choose to choose to take on um if you're completely closed-minded to any other opinion because you've determined that your identity is synced with this topic it's very hard to have conversations objective conversations you're correct yeah so this is some of the self-awareness piece that can be missing with people they don't realize that if if I'm having these big emotional reactions to defending my opinion, then hmm, I yeah, should. What's under there? What's under the hood there? Yeah, exactly. Because then you're just blocking yourself from learning anything new. Mm-hmm. And learning, we're constantly learning new things. I mean, that's what growth is, right? Right. Like, and you have to expose yourself to things you don't want to hear. Sometimes things you don't want to do, which is change. Yeah. Right. Because otherwise, you're handicapping yourself. You know, maybe you're going to be in your zone of being right but do you really i don't know yeah i don't think you grow as a person no i don't think you do either and then you're not open to new experiences and then you know that's actually part of why in part people have have a depressed perspective right they don't realize that they're kind of blocking themselves from growth as Mm -hmm. well i would say like people kind of get angry and bitter in their own you know and they kind of spin around on that and so it's you know, for someone like me to say, okay, well, you know, what do you want? They're like, I want to be happier. Well, you know, sometimes rigid thinking gets in the way of that, you know, if if that's, if we identify it as a rigidity, you know, which sometimes it is. And what about language? Like I know, um, I also wouldn't be sensitive with your time. It's 10 right now. Are you still good for another 20 minutes? I want to talk about language and the use of language and the subtleties of how someone speaks. Like I always hear this when, um, when someone comes into the clinic and someone comes in with back pain. And if they say, I have a bad back, my back's bad versus I currently have back pain. That is a very, that tells me something Mm -hmm. very different. You know, I remember this quote once that said, it's not really about, 
knowing what disease a person has. It's knowing what person, uh, what kind of person has a disease. Right. So, so people's use of language, I think, reinforces them identifying with something that is just a tra- like a transient state versus part of their personality. Right. I ha- I am currently depressed. I've taken it on I, as an identity. Yeah. Versus, yeah. And I think like the language as a therapist, we never got any te- any any education in school about the the importance of language mm. and how what you tell someone creates a new story and mm-hmm. and sometimes we create the wrong story. I think medical professionals have a really bad habit of using language in a way that makes people identify with a faulty body yeah. versus which is very disempowering because it essentially removes the potential for solving it mm-hmm. and now you're stuck with managing it. Yeah. And those are like really suck. So like talk about your how you view language and the importance of that because i think with mental health is a really big one oh yes in fact like i i see it as um it's really one of our roles uh which is to help someone to see how much they're identified with uh the way they look at things or the way they look at their body and so i don't allow my client i mean obviously in the beginning when i'm listening to I want to understand their whole frame of reference, right? And you're then gathering data. Yeah, and then I will at some point later down the line present to them, you know, you know, cuz you know, my job is to present these are the blocks I I ask them, okay, what are you what are your theories on what's blocking you? Cuz I always want to know what what people's own theories are first before I I give my own and invariably at, at one point I have to say when I'm sharing what I see as some of the blocks it will be I think you're really identified with viewing it in this one way mm-hmm. and I think that's one of the things that's blocking you from actually um, growing and changing and having better health and um, so I actually don't allow my clients to identify with I'm a depressed person or um, I um I'm going to have back pain forever or, you know, because right. I have a lot of clients who have chronic pain as well. And so. Um, Which is depressing. It is. And they're, is. they are a vicious cycle and they are, they are tough to manage. Right. But we want to give people the skills to manage it. And one of the things that interferes with managing it is viewing it as this awful thing that's going to last forever and I'll have it forever and there's nothing I can do about it because that's a victim mindset. So I'm not saying there are some people who may have pain conditions, um, you know, that are maybe much of their life, they may have some of that to deal with. But I think, like I always say to people, uh, if you do a lot of, if you throw a lot of good things at your body, which is, I say, even with chronic pain, you got to move every day, right? Mm-hmm. If, you know, you have to take care of your mental health. You have to take care, what do you eat? Well, you know, you should do all these good things for yourself. There's so many variables. Your body will, will, won't will have as many symptoms or those symptoms right. will be easier to manage, right? So identifying, so if you're identified with something, um, that's never efficient. That's never typically a good thing. Um because essentially, I always say to people, I want you to be like, you get to define yourself, but you have to see like, what effect is me taking on, a, you know, identifying with something? What effect is that having? Because right. if you say, you know, um, I have a, I have a bad back or I'm a depressed person, it disempowers you, right? Exactly. Because you're less like you're, you're you know, um, you're less likely to then say there's something I can do about this yep. to change my, you know, to change the types of symptoms that I have like and to reduce it. The potential for solution gets wiped off the table when you immediately say, I am this, it's finite, 
this is who I am. Um, yeah. It's it limits you a lot. That's part of the limiting program. Well, what we often call it is, you know, like it can be like black and white thinking or all or none thinking. So there are a lot of thinking patterns that are very destructive. Mm-hmm. That's what it comes down to. So part of our job as therapist is to help you examine those destructive thinking patterns and then just say, you know, um, change them because they're getting in the way of you getting better, essentially, right. right? And they disempower you. And if and if a thought pattern is disempowering you, it means you're not gonna you're not gonna take the motivation and the energy to change your circumstance, right? So it's oh oh my gosh, they're hugely powerful in how they determine uh, the state of our lives, uh, yeah. the the language, the words you use, the things you say to yourself all all day long, and and oftentimes we're not fully conscious of those things. Mm-hmm. They're kind of um, speaking to us in the background. That that's if you. Any person who say, like, I actually just came back from a, a, a trauma therapy training in Ohio, and it's heavily based on, it's called cognitive processing therapy, and the, there's very re- uh, robust research results that have come out of this particular protocol for the last 20 years, the research results have been building, and it's heavily based on um, uh Cognitive. It's a cognitive form of therapy where you're given homework every day where you're challenging your beliefs right. about Ooh, the particular trauma that you went through, about like, this is what I believe about myself. This is what I believe about what's possible with my health. And so it's all about challenging your beliefs and coming up with alternative ways of looking at it. Mm. So unless any person who takes, and it happens to be a 12-week protocol, and yeah, it, it feels like a lot of work, but at the end of it, it's worth it because... You feel like you can feel like a different person in the sense that you have the tools to like examine your, you know, like, wow, this is the way I was speaking to myself. Like, Mm -hmm. I didn't realize that it was so that it was that it was um, undercutting my confidence, that it was interfering with me making different choices and making changes. And then so it's well worth it to to. You know, uh, to put in the work. Yeah, to put in the work. To to go and 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 say, hey, like I, if I want my life to be better, let's let's get a coach and let's you know, have do like a set type of homework like that where I'm actually really closely examining how I think and how I could think differently, and then you essentially you're building your observer self, and and then that's oh my god, like once you do that, your life gets exponentially better because you that teaches you wow, like I have not been thinking efficiently and now I know how to think efficiently. And so you can catch yourself. You catch Mm -hmm. yourself in the disempowering, in the all or nothing, black and white thinking, like I'll never get better. That's a no-no. We do not, as therapists, we do not not allow you to think that way because you're getting in your own way, essentially, you know, and you don't realize how powerful an effect that has. So, oh my gosh, like the way you speak, the words, those are, that's um, critical. Yeah, and I always think of, I heard someone say this analogy once, thought patterns um, that are, rein, are, are reinforced by the amount of times they're used. So, mm-hmm. you know, in Canada, I think about it like a toboggan hill. So you go down, a, you have a fresh hill with a bunch of snow. You go down it once on a toboggan, it, it makes a kind of a rut, like a groove. And the next time you go down, it's easy to take that groove. That's where your toboggan wants to go, right? It's yeah. already been passed. It's it's, yeah. it's um, packed down. 
And the more times you take that groove, the harder it is to get out of that groove. Correct. And I think sometimes, you know, my perspective sometimes on depression and anxiety is sometimes you need a catastrophic thing to happen to you mm-hmm. to bump you out of that groove. Sometimes you need someone to stand beside you and pull you out of that groove, right? Correct. A therapist. Yeah. So I think the imagery of, of that sometimes helps them realize like, yeah, I am using the same thought pattern that's where, a great one actually. and like yeah. sometimes i even think about it myself it's like if i treated others like i treat myself at times i'd be a dick yeah. it's like i <laughs> well, need to just be nicer we all would. right yeah. right you just gotta be nicer to yourself and more understanding that like you can't be perfect and you can't do everything well all the time and you and everyone has problems that they're trying to solve some people's problems are bigger some people are dealing with their problems better than others and really all it is is acknowledging creating space and and like forgiving yourself for things that you're not doing right that you know you're not doing right but you Mm -hmm. keep doing and trying to solve them and it's sometimes it's not necessarily i need to be better at doing this it's i need to align what my expectations are with the with what's realistic yeah right so it's like a very adjustment process it's not always oh i gotta be better at this it's like well maybe i'm not going to be that good at that but that's still good enough that i can feel good about it Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. yeah you just pointed up something that humans are the current state, uh, humans collectively currently are very bad at forgiveness, self-forgiveness. Yeah. So, because that's a big portion of compassion and self-compassion and compassion for others. But c- compassion for others starts with self-compassion. So, yes. um, I'd say that self-compassion is a facet of that observer self-concept we're talking about. Like, you can't be a good coach to yourself unless you have compassion, right? So, if you think back to... What does compassion mean to you? What compassion means to me is looking at looking at my behavior realistically and saying and and actually saying like okay what was actually possible for me to accomplish there and actually being there's a there's a tone of kindness right you know that's um, what it means to me too not understanding critical, not critical supportive kind because if you think about it like if you ever had a sports like a, a sports team coach who was, you know, yelling and cruel and those kinds of things. That's typically makes people want to, you know, it makes you more depressed. It, it disempowers you, right? Mm-hmm. So if you, if you have that voice in your head, and actually that is a, that's actually a proven research result within the therapy research field, which is one of the, the major um, facets of our mind that perpetuates depression is um, self-critical thinking. So until you get a handle on that, people will continue to be depressed. No matter what other good things that they do, it's a critical component, meaning you, you have to become non-critical in right. the what you say to yourself. It's like a keystone obstacle. If that's not removed, it doesn't matter. All the other good yes. stuff, yep. that's the that's that right limiting step. You might, you know, if you got exercise and eating and all those other things going, you might, you know, tone down and reduce some of your depression symptoms, but they will, even at low level, keep going because it's the relationship that you have with yourself. And so if you think about it, you have to become like a positive type coach. If you think about in your life, if you ever played a sport and you had a positive coach, what is that? Coach was what you said in the beginning, which is um, realistic, keeps you accountable, but is also empathetic, right? right? Meaning like, okay, okay, yeah, so you made a mistake there and that cost us a goal. Okay, well, what can you do differently, right? So that's a different tone than, you know, you're a stupid idiot, don't do that again, like a, you know, aggressive kind of abusive tone, right? No one responds to that, you know, And, and we don't, when we have that kind of 
speak in our head, we don't really respond to it either. We think we're motivating ourselves, but we, you're actually just perpetuating more disempowerment and more sadness and depression, and you're going to be less likely mm-hmm. to make good choices, right? So, um, so it's not just all you know, soft and cuddly kind of stuff. Like it's sort of like this kindness, accountability, yeah. Sort of, you know, you have to have a positive coach, and that's a lot of yeah. what therapy teaches, right? It's just, you know, people internalize. Uh, the ther- your therapist should have those qualities. You know? um, ideally, we typically do. Um, and then you internalize some of that and then you also do your experiments. Um, and then I'm monitoring to see like, well, how self-critical are your thoughts? Well, how are you speaking to yourself? You know, and then we start to change those. And then when people start to be more forgiving and, um, you know, realistic, but in a neutral way, not in a critical, cruel kind of way, it makes right. all the difference. Yeah. I agree with everything you just said. And like two things to kind of finish up. I think one of them, one thing that I've been thinking of is uh, the whole concept of the chain of abuse. And that someone that is abusive, if you take the mindset that someone that is abusive was once abused, and that's what, that is the behavioral pattern or the way of dealing with problems that they grew up um, being programmed with. Mm -hmm. And it's like, how do we, because I think a lot of people that have these problems aren't the people necessarily. There's so for every one person that goes to therapy, how many people do you think are, are out there that need therapy but aren't getting it? Obviously, that's a, just a straight up estimation. <laughs> yeah, I think so too. And they're like, you see it. I see it all the time in airports. We won't see those people though. That's I know. The, yeah. So how do we? You know, it's like how do we get this global state of awareness where like the state of mental health today is not is not good, right? We have a problem with mental health. And we have an awareness that we have a problem with mental health, which mm-hmm. is great, right? Everyone's more comfortable talking about mental health or saying that they have issues. Are you talking about how do we get people to see that they do need to look at themselves? How do and- we break the chain of abuse, right? Like you yeah. need one person to bump out of that chain so that they don't then imprint on their children who imprint on their children. And yeah. I think the, the, the dynamic of the family, I think, is the place where we can rescue a lot of this stuff, mm-hmm. where if you... People just need better tools. No one has tools available, like publicly available tools. Like what happened to public service announcement or publicly funded health resources? Seems like we used to have more I think of those. we did. Yeah. Like public yeah. service announcements where it's like, oh, don't smoke. It's bad for you. Those I are used, great. I used to love, uh, I don't know if this might be um, predating you, but uh, participation. Do you remember, remember that? In my, that in my generation, before. participation was, I used to love, look, look forward to those commercials because they had like a, a, a woman and a man, I can't remember what their names were. But, uh, and you know, they gave you a little snippet about like, you could do this bit of movement in the day and it'll make you ah, feel so much Trudeau, better. get that going, right? brother. You Come know, on. those kinds of things, right? Um, but yeah, there was a point that you said, like, how do we, um, how do we, um, get people to recognize, like empower people around the issue of abuse. You know, I actually think what it comes down to, it's not just what goes on in your family. I think as humans, we have the ability to affect it all of the time. Yeah, So what your it, behaviors. Yeah, so once, once you yourself um, become empowered and part of becoming empowered, like using your own power, which is you don't let someone, you know, kind of steal your power or right. um, disrespect you. Like, so I, you know, th- part of my job as a therapist is also teaching people how to be assertive. And that's really the positive valence of anger. Anger is part of, you know, all of the emotions are part of our um, nervous system for a reason. They all have a purpose. And anger's purpose is actually to, um, for 
uh, boundary definition. Protection. Yeah, protection. Those <laughs> kinds of survival. And so, you know, assertiveness is the positive valence of that. So assertiveness is saying to someone, you know what? Like, it, I don't care if you're at work. There's tons of abuse that goes on at work. And I also... Like micro abuses that just build oh, up to damage people. It's... Some workplaces are the same as a schoolyard. Literally mm. no different. Literally no different. So, and I don't call... I don't like the word bullying because I think that's a softening word that we shouldn't be calling it. So, I call it abuse. Yeah, I think abuse so is the right word. if you are, you know, saying you know, teasing emotionally, you know, like, I don't mean a comment once, you know, once in a, here, you know, one comment, you know, when someone gets super offended. I'm talking about someone going to school every day and being afraid to go to school because you're being hounded by someone, you know, that's emotional abuse. And so we should call it as such. And the same kinds of things go on in the workplace. So I don't care if you're at school, workplace, out in public or whatever, we have to teach people not to take abuse from other people. And so that might be, you know... Um, uh, I don't like the thing that you're saying to me right now. You don't get to say that to me. Like, you know, like you don't, and You don't have a right to say that. Yeah, you don't have a right to say that. Um, And so, you know, uh, like for instance, I was, I remember like just a personal example. I was, I was at a hockey game uh, once um, in another city and I was going to see my team play the team that was in that city. And so there were two hecklers behind me and they knew I was going for the opposite team who was visiting Who's there. Your te- what are these teams? Let's give a little context. What are of these context. teams? <laughs> these, I was in Montreal at Bell Center and um, my team was the Winnipeg Jets. And so, okay. um, yeah, I was just sitting there trying to enjoy the game, you know, and uh, these guys were just harassing me the whole time. Like just, it literally was emotional abuse. And so half the game, I was turning around to them, like standing up for myself and saying like, what is your problem? Like, I'm yeah. trying to enjoy the game here. Like, stop saying those things because I'm going to get someone and you're going to be removed. But, you know, like, I think they were shocked that I was actually speaking assertively yeah. to them. And actually, you know, it even got to the point where, I, at the end of the game, I just said, you know what? That's it. I'm done. Meet me outside because, like, you guys are being, you know, and I swore at them. <laughs> That's okay. Because, You're allowed to. Yeah, exactly. And that was part of my defense system. It's like, you know what? You, in part, ruined my experience. It was hard to shut, like, I tried to shut them off. Those guys right? were probably scared. Yeah. You said, those guys were probably <laughs> shit scared. <laughs> I don't know. But I was, but I think sometimes you have to, it has to get to that level where you stand up to, right. for yourself to, to the point where you're just like, okay, like let's uh, let's hash this out somewhere. And I and it could be verbally, it could be. I mean, we did throughout the game, but it's those kinds of things. Like, why do you why did you know why does someone think it's okay to like negatively affect someone else's experience for their own entertainment? I think it's part not. of the reason is they've never been told that that's unacceptable. Precisely. So I think that's why we all have the power oh, all of the point. time. Like, there's no right. special conditions needed. It's just. If you see, you know, some something being done to yourself, and I don't just stand up for myself, I stand up for other people. It doesn't just have to be mm-hmm. uh, happening to me, but I'll just go up to someone. I've gone up to kids before teasing another kid going like, what are you doing? Like, right. this kid's not enjoying what you're putting down here, so exactly. you better stop. I've said that on, I've taken my niece to the playground, and um, and I've seen that happening. I just go, I don't even care if the parent's there, because yeah. they're not stepping in, they're sitting there looking at their phone, exactly. not monitoring what your kid's doing and how it's impacting someone else like um, you're allowing your kid to be shaped into a not a good human right so like i think it's all of our responsibility to call each other out and yeah. i think if we were doing that and not afraid to do it 
That would and, be the norm. Yeah, it's our it's everyone's place to say like, hey, if someone is treating some you or someone else badly, you get to go up to them and say, you can't do that anymore. And you don't have to be aggressive about it. Like when I was talking to those guys at the hockey game, like at first I started to try to joke around with them and just say, okay, you know, show them I'm not going to take it, you right. know, and sort of joke around and Send say, oh, da, 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 you yep. know, so they'll stop. But then I really got mad at the end and I just said, you know, you ruined part of my hockey game experience and that's not okay. Um, but part of what I was really surprised about is that there were like 20 people around us who watched all this going no on. Thing. No one said a thing. Yep. Which is fine because like, I think if you're an empowered person, you don't need someone to help. But yeah, We have if, Kitty if, Genovese's happen every day <laughs> it, yeah, in non-death well, situations. That's a very that's- minor example, right? But I was shocked, right? Because like I was really excited to go to that and I was just like, oh man, like I don't want to yep. be, you know, I guess. And you know, one of the things I could have done is I could have got up went into another seat. But that's my stubbornness, right? So that could be something that I could adjust in myself, right? So in future, but I always take the the but view of like But then you enable like, them to do that same Well, shit that's what I'm time. saying. So like I just say, "No, I'm going to I'm going to sit in here and rectify this and however it affects my experience, fine." But I want it was also like um yeah, I just want to teach people and I think I was also teaching the people around. You were 100% yeah, your well, behavior reached every single person that was within earshot. Yeah empowered them to be like shit i'm gonna do that next time because that's not fair right so when i said i turned around and said okay guys meet me outside because we're gonna have this out right they <laughs> they, they i mean they weren't really afraid of me but they they disappeared because they you know this is just all fun for them right? right but um and then the guy sitting next to me with a girlfriend he said he goes i like you yeah. <laughs> he goes, you know what i'm like he goes i like what you said and i felt like saying well what did, why didn't you step in and say that? i mean i don't expect that from people but i think we're all sort of we walk around disempowered when we have all the power. You just have to use it, right. right? You have to use it to, you know, defend yourself, defend other people. We can have a better world, but you have to step in. You have to put yourself on the you have line. To be an activist. Yeah, your well, behavior has to show the way that you want the world to be. Right. Because if you're just passive and take a back seat, you're essentially setting the example for change. everyone around you to yeah. accept the same stuff. And I think. You know, like hierarchy in a workplace doesn't give you a hall pass to abuse people. This is another bullshit thing that goes on. It's like, you know, I think the assertiveness, the lack of assertiveness, part of it is the fear of repercussion or workplace problems. Like the standard has to be such that anything other than this is unacceptable. And if that's the culture in the workplace where everyone can feel empowered to, it doesn't matter if the boss of the whole company comes up to you and is being a dick, you can say, that wasn't, you know, maybe don't hash it out in public, but say, I'd like to speak to you later because, you know, I, I have something I want to speak to you about. And you say, listen, the way that you spoke to me made me feel really uncomfortable. Yeah. And that's unacceptable. And like, I always say, say to people, make it simple. I didn't like what you said. There you go. I didn't like it. It didn't, it, it was, it was that, 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 right? But, and I think it has to be like, it's like anything. Everything gets blown out of, the pendulum swings sometimes too hard, right? Like, I like to tell people, you don't have the right to never be offended, but you do have the right to never be abused. Right. Right. Because right. if some, someone says something and it offends you, well, sometimes you're going to get offended to things, but was it actually targeted towards you? Was it actually something that should be, you know, it's, it's, well, you got to determine the line. You're right. So when you, I think that's what part of what a, like an assertiveness skill is, right? When you say back something to that other person because you want them to change their behavior, it's the beginning of a conversation, right? right? It's not just, I was offended. 
you know, and like you're stuck in your being offended. Right. Like it's really like, um, are you aware that what you're saying is actually really coming across negatively and aggressive? Like some some mm-hmm. people aren't, right? And so when you point it out to them, like, hey, I don't like how you're talking to me. Like this, this is not acceptable to me. And they're like, well, what isn't acceptable about it? And so you're actually teaching each other. Yes. Like to, social interaction. Yeah. Like, you know, and so that person might say, hey, like, um, you know, like uh, different personalities, they don't realize how they're coming across. They're like, hey, I didn't realize I was being critical. I'm sorry, you know, and, and then that problem, not you know, hopefully solved, yeah. you know, uh, but it's about having conversations and like you're refining your, you know, that relationship with that person. But yep. if you never speak up, you know, it's about speaking up. And so part of my job, right, is to get people to the point where, um, you know, they, you know, because self-respect is a, is a huge part, right? So you you understand your own landscape, you get clear, and then you start actually expecting better treatment from people. I love it. Some mm-hmm. of the best days of my life as a therapist is I come in and my my clients are telling me about how they're be more assertive with something. They tell me a story how they're more assertive. I'm like, you wouldn't have done that a year ago. Nice. That's amazing progress, right? And so once you get clear and you and you think, yeah, you know what? I, I'm treating myself better and I want other people to treat me better, right? And so then you start having those conversations with people and saying, you know what? Um, you know, let's have a different relationship. I don't like the relationship that we have now. I, something in some of the things you've said, something's not right there. Let's, uh, you know. You, let's you, figure it out. Yeah, let's figure it out. So really assertiveness is the beginning of a conversation because I hoped with, you know, my little example, I'd hope that they would say, hey, you know, we're just kidding or they would stop at some point, right? right? You know, um, and then, but, and that's what you find out and that's what a lot of life is. But I think you have to be, I think we're not going to have a different world unless you're willing to be uncomfortable and you're willing to put yourself on the line. And I think Mm -hmm. we all have to start doing that more. Um, I don't know. I just always had kind of a, I don't know. I just believe in that. Like, I I guess from all of my observations of people, I've just deduced that if you want to have real change, everyone has to get uncomfortable and everyone has to tolerate. Uh, Yeah, because what happens though when you... When you are assertive with someone, oftentimes you get a lot of anger back. You get a lot of defensiveness. And if you're not, so you have to have the skills to be able to, what do I do with that? You got to be able to back it up. Yeah, yeah, back it up and also like contain that, right? And just feel that. It's very uncomfortable to have someone's aggressiveness coming back at you because mm-hmm. oftentimes they'll double or triple it. Yeah. They, well, how yeah, dare exactly. you? you know, da, 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 da. Yeah, you know, so, um, yeah, ha, you know. So managing. But that's how you learn. It's like yeah. putting yourself in uncomfortable situations and being able to reflect after me and like, I wonder if I dealt with that in the right way, uh, you know, and acknowledging like that person's anger is probably not, they're probably not trying to aim that at me, Yeah. but they're just throwing they're it unhappy. out there and I just happen to be a target in front of them because I called them on their shit and they're upset that they're acting like that, but they're taking that out as anger towards me. And I think it's one of those things where just kind of down downloading and reflecting on things that happen um, is such a is such a constructive process mm-hmm. that I don't think a lot of people engage in. Yeah. I think a lot of people don't even know it's something to be engaged in, right. which is the problem. It's this awareness thing. If you're not aware that these problems can be worked through or that you have, if you're not aware that you have tools you're not even using mm-hmm. to assess whether that was a good way of behaving, how that person's behavior can you're te- signal. You're teasing apart. It's very yeah. important. And it's yeah. like you said, like it's all about helping people understand that they have access to that process. They just have to sharpen those tools and, and regain access to those processes. Totally. 
Oh, man. Thank you so much for coming and chatting today. I hope we can do this in like six months or, or three months or something like that, because I really think, you know, like I had a bunch of other stuff written down we didn't even get to because right. the stuff we talked about was so <laughs> engaging. But I think that the state of mental health and the ability for us to kind of give simple solutions or bring things into awareness, right? Mm -hmm. Just bring things so that anyone's ears that are hearing the words that are coming out of our mouths, hopefully it can open them up to maybe a different perspective, different way of thinking trying of things, yeah. trying something, experimenting, um, and just seeing it in a new way. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Cause that's mm -hmm. really, really what changes is seeing things in a new way and then acting and putting in the work to it, to act along those, um, those realizations. Yeah. So, um, anything in closing that you want to say? I'm just happy to have the opportunity. It's been a pleasure you talking to do your own with pocket. you. I told you, like Liv's told you this. You're just so, you're a very powerful speaker. And even like, I remember when we worked together in physio, like you just, you're in. You you buy into things and you and you commit to doing the work to achieve the result. And I think like if I ever have something I need to go see a therapist for, I'm contacting you because like it seems like your approach is, like I really hope that this is how most um, interactions of therapy or most therapists work. And I, 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 I think, think it so. is. I think, I think so. it is. Yeah, because I mean, how can you like, as, and I appreciate, thank you for the kind words. I, um, I think unless you've been working on your own game plan for yourself, you can't really help another person. And right. I think people you have can to be fit see, for service. you can see pe people can see that. And I often tell people, you know, as we're going along, I give examples about myself and I say, I'm still in the process of figuring things out. I'm tweaking things. We're all mm -hmm. in the same boat. And Constantly. yeah, exactly. And um, yeah, I think, uh, I think you have, uh, moments in life that wake you up to um, do I want to coast along in life or do I want to really live and do I really want to enjoy so I guess I've used some of those experiences and then I you just dial into life and so you're I'm, like that, I'm always yeah like I'm always checking to go like okay how did my week go like how do I want next week to go like how how do I organize things differently like what do I need to um, you know like one of the things I just discovered was um, this fall, like I, I had a change of office, everything, everything was very busy, but I was still, I was, um, it just so happened there were, there were two, uh, giants in our field that were, um, giving seminars. And so I had to fit those in because that nice. was important to me because that, that was the growth that I needed. And so I had a seminar in Toronto with, uh, John, uh, went to see John Briere, who's one of the, the big names in the trauma field. So I fit that in because I was, you know, he doesn't come around, you know, close by uh, every every day. And then I was, I just came back uh, actually Sunday from Ohio, um, and saw the founder of one of the, you know, most well researched uh, trauma therapy protocols, uh, Dr. Kathleen uh, Kate Chard, um, cognitive processing therapy. Um, the research from that, so built that in because I said, okay, I need these. Um, Right, so it didn't make always, your life easier to fit no, them in, but no. it was worth it. Yeah, and actually one of the positives that I, you know, I thought, oh my God, you, when I looked at it, I'm like, really, can you do all of this? That's a lot of traveling in between <laughs> trying to get things done for clients, paperwork before Christmas. Can I actually do this? And then the positive that I was surprised to find from that is that it actually energized me, wow. right? You listen to these speakers, they're yeah, putting new information. It's, I've forgotten how when you go to see you know, someone who's an expert in their field, it like inspires you. And then it, it like sparked more energy. And I feel 
happier and like to be able to finish mm-hmm. the tasks I have in the last two weeks before Christmas, you know, but again, you catch yourself in that mindset of like, oh, you know, the doubt, can I do this? Did I take on too much? And yeah, maybe that's a valid question. Uh, but also like when you do an experiment and you try different things, you, 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 you find positive silver linings. It's mm-hmm. like, wow, I was, I'm a lot more inspired than I thought I would be. <laughs> Just reframe. I always yeah. tell people like all stress is self-imposed and that's a, d- a deep thing to say and it can mean different things, but like find the good stuff it's there right and also say exactly and then also say to yourself well this is what's on the menu i'm sure i'll I'll find a way of handling it i'll figure (laughs) it out right have faith and that's a big that's a big part of what you gain after therapy after you go through a period of therapy is that you believe in yourself more and you're like yeah i think i can do this or i'll do my best right positive outlook yeah and so then and then lo and behold things in life get a little easier and then you feel more in control and so it's good stuff yeah amazing thank you so much for taking the time uh i hope everyone that's listening to this got some benefit and hopefully some relevance from it and uh thanks for listening and we'll catch you next week